this kind of gets at another this is this kind of gets at the thing that I may actually really disagree with Sam Harris about is this idea seemingly that you know Trump's presence on the platform he will continue to be a fire hose of lies that other people will hear and then act upon and that if he weren't on Twitter that wouldn't happen you know getting back to star manning and persuasion and stuff like that that's the fundamental thing you have to recognize like this is a person this is a human being who has feelings and who feels very strong excuse me feels very strongly about things Um, and you need to get at that if you're Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Angel Eduardo, a writer and a musician who first came across my radar with his wonderful piece on star manning, on essentially giving a position, uh, giving a representation of an opposing opinion that not only touches the best arguments for why, but the deepest motivations for why they believe in something. As you can see, that tension towards seeking what is most true and really trying to understand where people are coming from is very important to both of us. And Angel definitely has very deep insights on this topic. This is a rather thorough and quite frankly, quite a personal discussion for both of us. You'll definitely see uh, later in the episode, but I think it's still very worthwhile to go through and to pick up on some uh, some of the ideas for sure but also some of the practices, some of the habits that you can learn from this conversation. And, as always, if you'd like to help the show, number one thing you can do is recommend it to a friend. The odds are you have someone with the same interests, the same hobbies as you, and that person will enjoy listening to the podcast just as much as you do. Hopefully you do enjoy listening to this podcast. Uh, I don't see why you're here otherwise. But if you know such a person, then not only can you help us out, but you can also help him or her out by recommending the podcast. And that's the best thing that you can do. And without further ado, here's Angel Eduardo. Do people need more or less rights around speech? The short answer is more. Mm. So I think that you're a very well-known defender of liberalism or classical liberalism, right? Uh, so could you give a kind of definition of that and we, we can follow up after of why you defend it? I, I try to shy away from terms or labels, group labels especially, because everybody walks around with their own definitions of things. And it, right. it, it becomes kind of a waste of time, you know, the preamble that you have to do or you clarify your terms. Sometimes it's inevitable. It's always better to do than not. But if I can, I try to just jump straight to the ideas themselves. And sure. for me, for me, it's, it's, you know, the importance is freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of exchange of ideas, uh, the freedom to be wrong and the freedom to be wrong in public, the freedom for others to tell you that you're wrong in public. Um, those are all, I think, the healthy precursors to a functioning society. Uh, and that's, that's really what I care about. I mean, I, it all stems from a knowledge 
that I don't know everything and that in fact I know very very little and that I kind of need to outsource my my knowledge and my knowledge acquisition to everybody else and if we kind of try our best to do it together we'll probably fare better than we would if we were trying to do it by ourselves. Right. And even that includes even people who vehemently disagree with you, right? That's right. Yeah, I want people to vehemently disagree with me because maybe they're right. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't want to be wrong, you know, as Sam Harris says all the time, I don't want to be wrong for a moment longer than I have to. Um, and if if it turns out that I'm right, well, it's good exercise. It's good for me to hear what the counter arguments are and to sharpen my position or my way of expressing my position in response. So either way, it's a good thing to do and a, a good place to be. Right. Sam Harris, I think, is an interesting example because he was well known for advocating for this, but he mm. has kind of brushed up against at least his mm. own limits with regards to how much freedom to, to basically say things that he believes to be false, right? He believes that if you have basically a high enough volume of uh, things, uh, of false claims, such as with the example of Trump, right? That that pushes up against the limit there, right? Yeah. It's a tricky, I think it's a tricky argument and I, I can't totally speak for him. Um, I usually agree with Sam Harris pretty much all the time, actually. Uh, but this one is a little bit odd for me, this this particular topic. And I think that it's not so much that I disagree with him completely. It's that there are some conflations happening right, um, right. On, on either side in terms of what the actual circumstances are and what should be done about them. You know, we're, we're talking right now, I guess, about Twitter and whether Donald Trump or, or Alex Jones should be readmitted. And uh, I actually wrote a, an essay about this that should be coming out, you know, today or tomorrow or something for Quillette, um, directly addressing this thing because I think. So much of the problem just comes from the mistaken idea that Twitter or social media in general are digital public squares, and they're not. They just aren't. You know, they literally are not. Uh, Twitter is is a private company owned by you know before before Elon Musk owned it, somebody else owned it, and they are the ones who determine the terms of service, and they have the right to. Uh, inconsistently apply those terms of service and it just is what it is. And you have to basically take it or leave it because you have no say. You can complain and maybe they'll hear you, but that's about it. You know? So in that context, um, you know, we can appeal to those people and tell them that they need a sane terms of service. And, you know, any kind of sane terms of service would would have Trump booted pretty much immediately and Alex Jones and a few other people for sure. You know, um, the, the part that gets tricky is, you know, the dissemination of information just kind of overall. And I'm not aware of Sam saying, you know, for example, to Joe Rogan, like you shouldn't have this guy on your podcast. Uh, I don't know if he's ever actually said, said that, but I think he's expressed concern for, someone like Joe Rogan who has the the size platform that he does having somebody on who is just spewing nonsense and um people you know running with that nonsense and that's sort of you know that's dangerous ideas can be dangerous um so i agree with him in that sense 
I wouldn't agree with him if he were saying, you know, you just shouldn't have this person on and I'm going to boycott you having this person on because people should be free to have whoever they want on their podcast. Uh, and I don't know that he ever goes that far. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit tricky because there's this kind of superposition that we put things like Twitter in where we treat it like a public square. We wish it was a public square, but it just isn't one. And the analogy that I bring to it is, you know, uh, imagine imagine that we we started appealing to Starbucks to take more seriously its 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 function as a co working space, right? Like you need to get better Wi Fi, you need to get more comfortable chairs, <laughs> right? We're we're just we're just demanding these things of Starbucks, right? And it, you know they they could benefit from acquiescing to those demands. They could. You know, they could decide to do that, and it might be a really good thing for them to do that and for everybody else. But they're under no obligation to do that, and you are under no moral or political authority to make them do it because that's not what Starbucks is. Starbucks serves coffee, and if they decided, you know what, we're just redoing everything, we're not even going to have seating, we're just going to have a walk-up window where you order your coffee and then you leave, that's totally fair and totally within their rights to do because that's what they are. They are they are a place that serves you coffee. You know, uh, everything else is extra. It's great if it works for you. You can have your meetings there, and you know, you can get your work done and write your novel or whatever. But that's not that's not what it was designed for primarily, and they have no real obligation to to oblige you in that way. You know, so it's just strange to go to Twitter and be like, no, this must be a place where anyone can say absolutely anything, and nobody should be able to stop them. Because we've decided that this is the equivalent of, you know, the literal public square downtown where anybody could show up with a megaphone. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, yeah, I think that there's a there's an interesting tension here, right? Which is that uh, I think Greg Lukianoff raised. I'm not sure if the point is original to him, but that's where I heard it. Uh, this, this point about uh, legal legal uh, kind of. Uh, limits of free speech and dispositional limits of free speech, right? He, so so yeah. Greg kind of completely acknowledges that, you know, there are many circumstances where it's completely legal to uh, apply basically restrictions to speech, including that of Twitter. And that's, that doesn't mean that just because you can do something, right, that it's always a good thing. Like you said earlier, you have a lot of situations where people who disagree with you uh, can very often be correct, and where you draw the line of that with regards to someone like Alex Jones, right, it's very difficult because although right. you might say with you might say that someone like Alex Jones is wrong about a lot of topics, you you don't actually know where to draw that line, right? Should it be half of Alex Jones, one third of Alex Jones, right? That actually drawing that line is difficult. Yeah, it is, and you know. Uh... Sam Harris brought that up, I think, on Twitter yesterday or today. Uh, we're speaking on November 21st. Um, sometime, sometime over the weekend, he mentioned, you know, are you bringing Alex Jones back? Why or why not? Right. And I saw Elon Musk's response, which was something to the effect of, you know, uh, I, I, held my, I held my newborn child in my arms as he died. Like I felt his last heartbeat. And, you know, basically saying, I, I, I will not tolerate anybody who causes the harm, you know, harm to children, which is what Alex Jones did, mm. um, or, or who belittles it. 
something to that effect. I don't have it right in front of me, but it was something like that, right? And uh, that makes total sense, I guess, right? But we just all have to stop pretending in this particular case that Twitter is something that belongs to everyone. It doesn't. It belongs to Elon Musk now. He bought it. He paid $44 billion for it, and he he owns it. He can decide what the rules are, and they can be inconsistent if he feels like it, and we just have to eat that. You know, but as for the as for the larger question of you know the culture, and the sort of whether it's a good idea, I mean, I don't know because that's where it gets really hairy, right? Because now think about think about what an actual public square is like, right? Think of like a public mm. park, right? Think of a public park. Like let's get let's get actual physical reality into the into the game here. Let's touch right. some grass. <laughs> yeah, let's actually, yeah, exactly. Let's let's literally let's touch some grass, right? So you're at a park, right? There's a field, there's a little picnic area. There are different things you can do there. There's maybe there's a track, there's a basketball court, there's stuff like that, right? And it's open to everyone, right? Anyone can just show up and have a picnic, maybe have a little birthday party, maybe uh, set up for an engagement proposal, right? There, I've seen those at the park near I live. Uh, people have picnics all the time. People have um, birthday parties all the time, right? They bring the balloons and the tables and the chairs and they have games and they do that, right? And I doubt anybody had to make a phone call asking permission or anything like that. People just kind of do it, right? And people show up and they play basketball and people show up and they run around the track and they play tennis and, you know, there's a pool in the summertime and they people go into the pool. Um, but what if there's a fight? Right? What if two people start start beating the crap out of each other? What happens? Right? Somebody calls the cops, and the cops show up, and they have to now re- regulate this behavior. Right? They have to take these people out because they're disrupting. Right? What if somebody? What if somebody? You know, for example, one of the rules is that you can't barbecue. Right? You can't have an open flame. But what if somebody brings a little mini barbecue, and they they're, you know, they're having a barbecue there. Right? Breaking that rule. Maybe people will be like, whatever, I don't care. But maybe somebody else is like, hey, you know, there's leaves on the ground. This guy might set a fire. What happens? The fire department comes. The police come. Some authority figure, right, has to show up to check the boundary and say, dude, you're you're taking this too far, right? Now, another thing that happens in the public square, which is more analogous to the thing we're talking about, is somebody could show up with a megaphone and a sign and kind of march around saying whatever nonsense they want to say, you know, uh, the end is nigh or you know, vote red or vote blue or whatever they want to say, right? Yeah, you're free to do that. What if this person starts inciting a riot? What happens? The cops show up, right? So you see what I'm what I'm getting at here is that even in a public square, some authority needs to be assigned to keep the peace, to regulate, you know, excessive behavior, all that sort of stuff. In that case, right, we have the government. That's what that's for, right? We have our local and state authorities, and then we have our laws, and then those things just become applicable there. Now, try to translate that to something like Twitter, right? If we really wanted to make Twitter a public square, it would require, first of all, Elon doesn't own it anymore because he doesn't get to make the rules, right? Because now we need to really have larger considerations about what the rules are, how they work, how they get implemented, how they get enforced. Right. So now we have governing bodies that we have to figure out. And now we have things where, you know, what if I get into a fight with somebody 
who's tweeting at me from India, right? I don't know what the logistics are mm, in terms right. of like, what if I break a law in India when I'm ex- when I'm interacting with him? What if he breaks a law in the U.S. the way he's interacting with me? How do we figure this out? What do we do? Like the the you know, and I don't know the answers to those questions. There may be answers, there may not. But the point is that all of that work needs to get done before people can just sit down and say, Twitter's a public square. You should let everybody back and everybody should just be able to do whatever because it's not so simple. Even public squares have parameters and we need to decide what those parameters are, how they work. And then the question becomes, who decides? How do we decide? Who decides? And so on and so on and so on. It's just turtles all the way down, you know? Um, And that's not what we have. What we have is Elon Musk decides and we can appeal to him and make the most of what he ends up doing. Yeah, what strikes me about these kind of moderation debates, I was speaking with Jim Rutt on his podcast, and we spoke about this as well, is that it is very cultural. It is something that is kind of inherited, something that is passed down from generation to generation that you kind of learn. And in some cases, it's explicit, something like, uh, you know, the First First Amendment, uh, something like the First Amendment law, right, the jurisprudence around it. What is actually what is actually incitement, right? What's the legal definition of that? What is actually uh, libel, for example? There are exceptions. It's not it's not completely absolute, but that there are kind of tried and true understandings of what is allowed and what is not allowed. And the parallel, like once again, I do want to ground this. I think that the thing that you did is great. I want to ground this in basically real life. Is that? You have very similar behaviors in, say, any kind of group that requires a a little bit of investment, right? So any kind of like, you know, local community group, local friend group, where you just, you know, you have to go, you have to go to the place, you have to go to the event in person, right? There's usually some level of decorum that is mainly cultural, but is, I think, on average, much more to the kind of liberal, lowercase a liberal, or basically like, quote unquote, free speech side, but where people just, you know, like, what's the last event you you went to, where people were kind of like, uh, you know, coming in with a megaphone or saying tons of uh, stuff that everyone that everyone there disagreed with, you know, mm-hmm. or like mm-hmm. not that there isn't disagreement, but just like constantly speaking and constantly, you know, going on and on. What uh, what Jim Rutt and many others call like rules of decorum, basically, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah. this is kind of a this is kind of a learned thing. It's not like you know, it's not like there's a there's a rule at you know at my friend's birthday party saying like you shall not, you shall not, you know, continue talking on and on about things for, for like 30 minutes or something like that, right? That's mm-hmm. not a hard and fast rule. It's like something that's learned, right. something that's intuited. Right. And, you know, like, could someone do that? Like, hypothetically, yes. But that, um, there, there's a saying in law that I think, uh, uh, something like exceptions, strong exceptions make weak laws or something like that, right? Mm. Where you have all of these circumstances that arise on the internet, that arise when there's not, when there's much lower investment or when there's much more uh, just, you know, natural variety in in human behavior, 
that results in these kind of de facto norms being, or like the, these, once again, inherited norms being like very, very strained, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if this is a challenge or if this is an agreement, but the main thing that I would bring to the kind of Greg Lukianoff view of basically cultural free speech is that mm-hmm. there's like a 90-10 problem here, right? Or maybe it's closer to like 98-2, mm. where by removing, there's a, there's a trade-off here, where by removing, you know, the 2% of worst offenders, you're able to loosen up the kind of technical norms of, for example, like how long you can speak, what kind of uh, things that you can talk about, right? Mm-hmm. That basically a vibrant a vibrant culture uh, and the ability to exclude basically exceptions right are actually deeply connected hmm. yeah i i just think you know this stuff is really difficult and uh you know everything that i brought up before is is about just recognizing the difficulty, right? It's recognizing right. that we're yeah. in unfamiliar territory and that if we really want to do this, we have our work cut out for us. It's not as simple as, you know, Elon Musk bringing a bunch of people who were formerly banned from Twitter and bringing them back and then all is well. That's not, that's not all that needs to be done here, you know, because, and he's, I think he's recognizing this slowly, you know, his, his, <laughs> He seemed to learn the hard way, the benefits of verification. And he, <laughs> he, t- he took it away and, and then he made it so that you can buy it for eight bucks. And then a bunch of people bought it for eight bucks and, you know, put their, their display name as Elon Musk. And that caused some confusion a little bit, at least. And then he started, you know, saying anybody who's a parody account has to label themselves a parody account, which to me seems like he figured out he figured out the same problem and decided to go with a much more difficult way of solving it. Right. So instead of trying to police every single parody account that would show up, it's so much easier to just find the one true account and give them a check mark that nobody else can get unless they are also the one true, whatever, you know what I mean? So it's just like, he's, right. he's like finding the long way back in my view to verification. Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in this case, it's, it's a bit complicated because <laughs> Yeah. I think that a real, I, I think that a real verification system would be quite good. A verification system that was just verification, right? Mm-hmm. But in practice, like the de facto verification in pre Elon Twitter was not that, right? It was oh, essentially no. a boosting service. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, exactly. The ability to circumvent that, but to, you know, like what would happen if Elon just decided like we're gonna do verification, but not verification. And, you know, all of these, uh, all of the, like, it was basically, it was basically a status marker because it was not equally applied and it was applied kind of semi-corruptly, right? It was sort of well-known that there were certain, you know, there are certain places you can get, you can get your verification done uh, much faster or, you know, done at all, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So those are real problems and it makes sense that he wanted to address them. But the way he addressed them seemed to kind of just break the whole thing and 
entirely. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Instead of just saying, well, no, now we're going to be very transparent and it's going to be totally above board the way that people get verified. Because it makes sense. It makes sense for, you know, a political figure or a celebrity of some kind, you know, to to have some way of of indicating that they are the real person and not some parody account. And it makes more sense to give the the indicator to the one real person than it would be to give a parody indicator to literally an infinite amount of potential parodies, right? So yeah, yeah, exactly, it, it exactly. Makes total sense. So you, you have know? this, you have the situation, right, where Elon has basically, like, you see this a lot of the time in politics as well, maybe less in business because a lot of businesses they're not really public facing. But you see this a lot of the time in politics where there's like an obvious solution and that obvious solution is cut off basically because of social factors, right? right. So Elon exactly. comes in, he's like, you know, this verification system is broken and this verification system marketed itself as verification, even though it was not, right? That mm-hmm. wasn't actually its primary function. It was one of, it was a, like an, an unequally applied and, you know, shoddily applied function, right? right? And that its actual function was something else. And he goes in and what he needs is he needs to say like, okay, we had this system which had a, which had like a marketing purpose and an actual purpose. And we need to destroy the system that was doing its, doing its like fake purpose and Mm -hmm. build a system or like modify the system so that it serves the actual purpose. But what happens is that you have this pattern basically where, because the marketing is honestly like fairly convincing, right? It's kind of taken up space. It's kind of taken up the, the kind of ideological or, or like the mental space of like, this system is what we call verification now. It's like inexplicably, it's like completely tied to the notion of verification on Twitter. Elon has to do this like, you know, basically crazy circumvention. And obviously (laughs) like the the consequences were, the consequences were clear to see. Yeah. uh, That's the bizarre part, right? Is that (laughs) how did you not see this coming? How did you not understand that this is what would happen? (laughs) <laughs> like, I'm not I'm not completely I'm not completely sure that he did not see this coming although he might he might not have like there there are a lot of most of the time right business development is not in public and this kind of like just raw experimentation mm-hmm. is pretty typical of these types of business, businesses. So I mm-hmm. would not be surprised if he just said okay we're going to try this experiment and we didn't give it um, we didn't give it all that much thought, but yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was basically the problem. It was basically the problem in the present, right? Yeah. And yeah. he did it. And, you know, when you're, when you're making a change, you should say like, does this increase or decrease the problem of the present? <laughs> exactly. Right. Like uh, that's the thing though, is that it, I'm no genius, right? I, I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't create SpaceX or Tesla. I'm not I'm not a brilliant guy in that sense. But I could have told you that with like just 60 seconds of thinking about it. Like, oh, that's probably going to cause this problem because it seems so obvious to me, but maybe not. I don't know. Um but yeah, way, so... I, I think I think I think the larger issue though is just that um we don't appear to be mindful of what is required for for something like Twitter to become the thing we want it to be, or the thing that a lot of people want it to be, you know, mm, that, and, that's an interesting point. Uh, go on. What are people missing? 
Well, it's the whole public square thing that I mentioned where if you really wanted to do that, I guess you could do it, but it's going to be a lot of work. You're going to have to figure out a lot of really difficult things and it's not going to be simple. It's going to be a pain in the ass. And we do you, you know, think you people want Twitter to be a public square? I think a lot of people do. Yeah, a lot of people huh. seem you know all the people who are mad at Sam Harris are are you know basically saying you know that Trump should be let back onto Twitter and he has been and you know everybody else should on principle. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly what that principle is necessarily. Is it? It, it could be because the rules were inconsistently applied. Um, which in that case, I, I, I guess that makes sense. But rather than bring Trump back, I would just begin to apply the, the rules consistently. I would just go go to everybody else who has flagrantly violated the terms of service the way Trump has and also get rid of them, right? So just to be fair. Um, yeah, this kind of gets to a point that I think uh, is very important about this is that like a lot of people are lying about their motivations, basically. I think like a lot of the free speech absolutist people are not actually free speech absolutists. They're like, you know, they're like everyone else. They're like all of the normal people who are not like ideological or just normal people on Twitter. Like going back mm-hmm. to the nor- to the point about like real life, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of, I have like one really social, socially progressive friend who invites me to these things and then i'm like hey guys would you like to learn about inherited differences in intelligence uh, i'm not actually uh, i i'm not actually i don't actually raise raise the point something like that right but uh-huh. but you you can get the idea i think that most people would like to be in like the normal the normal social gathering and not that kind of social gathering and basically you know the norms of twitter before was that that type of the second type of social gathering was imposed on onto like not necessarily the public square, but mm-hmm. you know the, this app where people are talking to mostly their friends, right? right. So yeah. I, I think that like there, there's this wonderful quote from this book, sadly porn by the last psychiatrist, which is like knowledge is a substitute for power, right? People desire knowledge. People desire these kind of like absolute propositional ideas. You know mm-hmm. this kind of like this kind of righteousness when they have no ability to actually enforce their, you know, their, their like quote unquote righteousness. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so to me, like a lot of this position is just, we would like Twitter to be basically managed like a sane person, you know, like a normal right. person. Like you, have you seen the meme, which is like, Jesse, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. Basically managed, you know, that that's basically the reaction to Twitter moderation is like, what are you guys going on about? You know, why are you banning people over, uh, over social progressive developments? And for example, like transgenderism that were, Mm -hmm. first of all, like only in the last, you know, five, six years. And second of all, not agreed upon by, if we, if we take opinion polls seriously by around 60% of the country. Right. Right. So it's more of a kind of like we would like we would like our social gathering to be you know like mostly people who uh honestly like mostly people who agree with us but like mostly people who are mm-hmm. not like puritan in this way mm-hmm. and so so i think like there there was actually this very interesting uh post by someone who i think like identifies himself as like very right wing saying like uh elon 
Elon uh, justifying keeping Alex Jones off Twitter by saying, uh, like, basically that he had a pretty negative, he had a very negative reaction to uh, basically, you know, mm-hmm. the negative harms to children versus, you know, outsourcing it to a committee and having all of these like formalizations and exposure to NGOs and such is actually an enormous development, even for people on the right, right? That if you're basically, if your moderation policy is much more human in this way and is much, much less, you know, prone to these types of um, bureaucratic capture scenarios, that Mm. that in and of itself is a much more uh, hospitable culture, even if it's not, you know, like free speech absolutism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are ways that we can figure this stuff out, right? So, I mean, I mentioned like any sane terms of service would would get someone like Donald Trump booted pretty quickly. So um, there is like one, <laughs> or there, I'm sure many people in my audience have more than one exception, but there's one ex- exception that like obviously raises to mind for me, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is Donald Trump is actually like categorically different from, you know, like some kind of Twitter rando, right? right. I, I do think like there there is a pretty solid... Uh, there is a pretty solid um, First Amendment, you know, like in, like actual incitement of violence, like legal incitement of violence case yes, that right. could be tried. I, I'm not sure what the odds are, you know, by, by the fact mm-hmm. that there hasn't been a lot of attention given to any such case. I'm not sure that the odds are very high, but that can mm-hmm. be tested. But in terms mm-hmm. of like, yeah, in terms of like the the public square or, you know, like the dinner party uh, theory of Twitter moderation, <laughs> right? right? Um, the the argument for Trump being on Twitter is basically he he was the former president. He has mm. a kind of um, basically what he what he says matters, right? Yeah. It, it, yeah, it has impacts on the real world. And even if he's like basically the annoying dinner party guest, then you know you can block him, right? Right, right. But that's all contingent upon treating Twitter as a public square, right? No, I think even in the kind of, you know, like even in the dinner party version of, of um, free speech, basically, right. Or Mm -hmm. not, not free speech, but like content moderation, let's Mm say, right. The argument of keeping Trump on Twitter is basically like, number one, he's an important person. And number two, he is, at the end of the day, right? If you want to block Trump, you know, it's not like Twitter is banning you from blocking Trump. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, the thing is that it becomes, once you, once you just abandon this idea of Twitter being a public square, it shifts the the conversation pretty significantly in my view. Like, you know, you keep mentioning a dinner party. Well, I wouldn't invite Trump to my dinner party. I don't care if he, if he's president or not. Right. Like I just, I don't want that guy in my house. You know right, I mean? right. So, and I can decide to do that, and there's nothing wrong with me deciding to do that, and that's the difference, right? So, if if whoever is in charge of Twitter decides, no, I don't want this guy in my house, I don't care who he is, you know, then that's that that is what it is, um, and people can can say that they're upset about that and whatever, but that's the thing. Now, you're right though that you know, for example, like I don't really. It doesn't really make a difference to me if Trump is on Twitter or not. You know, even when he was president, I didn't even mute or block him, but I, I, I just didn't engage with anything he tweeted. And I would see it occasionally because other people would respond to it, but that was the extent of it. And you know, I could, I could ignore it. And you know, I, I had the option of muting, 
muting him. Uh, I think you can filter out his name. You know, there's all these options for you to curate your experience if that's what you want to do. And that works too. But ultimately, you know, it's about who's in charge and what they decide to do. If they if they want to have him on, you have those other options at your disposal. But if they decide they don't want him on for whatever reason, that makes sense, you know. But the, the thing about the public square thing again is that that was the reason that he stayed on for as long as he did, right? There was there was a lot of consternation about this because, you know, Twitter is being treated as this public square and that has consequences, right? So this is where a lot of people get their news. This is where a lot of people interact with each other about current events, um, you know, celebrities and, and journalists and politicians. All these people recognize that this is somewhere they need to be and they need to engage because that's where the discourse is happening in large part. And so that changes things, right? So because because Trump was president, it it would have been bizarre for for Twitter to just get rid of him in the middle of his presidency, despite his flagrant violation of all the terms of service, because he's the president of the United States and that's the way that he was communicating with people. And I think there was even, you know, there was a lot of going back and forth about whether Trump was allowed to block people. Right? Mm, yeah, it, that was, was interesting. Yeah. And it was determined that he couldn't because people had a right to see what he had to say because he was president. Right. So that that is what complicates all this stuff in a really, you know, interesting way, I guess. But it's also really it makes things really, really difficult because all of that is is due to the fact that we are treating Twitter as something more than a private platform that people opt into and which is regulated by whomever owns it. You know, it 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 is, it is existing in this kind of superposition. It is this Schrodinger's public square. And that's what's causing all of this mayhem, really, is that we, we just don't have a, a fundamental understanding of what it is and how it's supposed to work. And we're kind of treating it in two different ways at once. Right, right. I, I think this kind of like duality is very important. That there's mm-hmm. like the legalistic principle, principle, like quote unquote version of it. And then there's the, there's like the social version of it. And, you know, like the social version ultimately is the reason why people use Twitter, right? Like, you know, revealed preferences, right? You know, I'm not, I'm not as much of one of the revealed preferences people as many of the people who are on this podcast, but at the end of the day, you know, like how many people are going on Gap, right? Revealed preferences. (laughs) And so you have the situation, and, and same thing in the current scenario, right? How many people are going on like Mastodon or whatever, right? Revealed preferences. Most people like whichever version of Twitter is Twitter. Um, right, right. And so you have this situation where I completely agree with you. There, there's like the missing, uh, there's like two problems that people are, are looking at and they're mistaking, they're mistaking one for the other. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I would still disagree. Or actually, I'm not sure. Maybe we do. Maybe we do agree. Um, I think we're completely in agreement on one version of the problem, which is like, um, does does Musk or whoever owns Twitter have the authority, you know, have the ability to to ban Trump from Twitter? And mm-hmm. we both agree that, yes, that he has the authority to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, do we agree that um, it is it is like the the societally good thing? you know, or like the good thing for Twitter, the socially good thing for Twitter 
for whoever is in charge to ban Trump from Twitter. Uh, I would say, I would say that um, actually, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I think about this. You know, like like most social problems, very complex. Yeah. But I would err, given given the condition that I think there's a lot of uncertainty here. I would err mm-hmm. on the side of it's probably better socially to not ban Trump from Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, I and from my interpretation, you would disagree with that, right? Uh, I don't. I, I don't. I don't know if I would disagree with it. I certainly wouldn't disagree with it strongly. I'm not Mm, totally sure how I feel about it because the thing is that this kind of gets at another, this is, this kind of gets at the thing that I may actually really disagree with Sam Harris about um, in that, you know, a a contingent of his argument, a component of his argument um, is, is this idea seemingly that you know trump's presence on the platform he will continue to be a fire hose of lies that other people will hear and then act upon and that if he weren't on twitter that wouldn't happen and i don't know that that's true and furthermore i don't know how many people trump has like convinced right as opposed to emboldened now it's a it's a different problem it's still a problem but it's a different problem you know so and it it just there are echoes to me of the you know heavy metal and violent video games thing mm, yes yes to this you know and that's the thing that i'm not sure about right because whether like if you know twi- uh, as far as i know trump has been reinstated and it's not going to affect me or my thinking in any way right i'm right. I, like it is highly unlikely that any tweet of his that I see is going to fundamentally change my opinion of him or my behavior in the world. Right. And I, I basically extend that same uh, courtesy to everyone else. Right. I, I, I don't think that he is a mind virus that is going to infect people and get them to completely change their behavior. Right. They're the people who like him, like him because they agree with him already. And they would agree with him already, whether he was on Twitter or not. And, you know, there's also the thing of wherever he does go, that's well the, that's where a lot of people will follow him. You know, um, he's, you know, I think he announced his, his presidency. He's going to run for president again. And I don't know what the numbers are, but he has his following and his following, you know, is what it is. And I don't think his following would have been bigger or smaller right now if he had never been booted off of Twitter. I just, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to see numbers if somebody could somehow uh, compute that. But, you know, that that's the thing is, is I think we're giving him too much credit and we're giving his followers too little. And, and by credit, you can also swap in responsibility. You know, I think that it's similar to the Joe Rogan thing, right? Like I've heard Joe Rogan, I've heard episodes of Joe Rogan where he's talking to some quack and the whole time I'm just kind of rolling my eyes, right? And I'm like, this is ridiculous. But everyone should be capable of doing that, you know? Everyone should be able to hear something and decide for themselves whether or not it's nonsense. And if they can't, and, you know, some people can't, some people hear stuff and they go, oh, this must be the truth. And then they go and do something nuts. Um, that's a reality. But the solution isn't to try to get rid of the guy who's spewing nonsense, the, real, the, the solution seems to me 
to be, even though it's more difficult, trying to get people to recognize, hey, this is how you absorb information. This is how you critically think about it. And this is how you process this stuff so that you don't make mistakes, so that you don't you know, end up getting duped, right? So it's better to try to inoculate people against nonsense than to try to get rid of nonsense because nonsense never, it'll never go away, right? There'll just be another version of it tomorrow. And next thing you know, you're just kind of playing whack-a-mole, right? Yeah, I completely agree here as well. Basically, there is this distinguishing that needs to be done between organization between basically ideas that attract many basically like crazy people who are already dispositioned to violence and to crime yeah Yeah. and which aren't necessarily good you know you should reconsider your organization if it attracts a lot of crazy people uh (laughs) but sure but also like a lot of those organizations are just you know they just attract a lot of people you know And, and and you know you have base rates you have base rates among the population of what percentage of the population is going to commit these crazy crimes. Right. And right. same for these uh, organizations. And even if it's the same, right, even if it's, you know, all the people who are voting for Trump have the same base rate as the general population, you can very easily get to gather enough people who to say, like, you know, storm the Capitol, right? Right. So you have the situation where it's just like, any kind of powerful aggregator of opinion or of action of belief is going to attract, you know, just probabilistically, right. If it's going to have the same amount of, uh, of people with this disposition as the general population, then it's going to have people who can, who have the potential to get together and do something quite crazy. Right. So yeah, I would, yeah, this has always been the part of, the Sam Harris view that's been the most dubious to me. It's the same thing. I had Jonathan Reich on the podcast and we discussed this as well. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he believes that basically Trump has um, either a tactical innovation or uh, some, some, or like a charismatic innovation, some kind of um, innovation, some kind of ability that just no one has tried to do in the past many years that is not really connected that strongly to technology. And mm-hmm. to me, this kind of like, it, it's like the, the Trump exceptionalism, right? Do you think that Trump is an exceptional exception or do you think that Trump is, or like Trump and his kind of like ideological followers or like stylistic followers mm-hmm. are basically, you know, um, part of the system, basically. Are, are they, are they, are they like in like science fiction terms, basically, are they, you know, an alternate timeline or are they just type <laughs> part of the broader world, right? And I've always yeah. been a kind of like broader world theory of Trump kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I should ask you, I should ask you the same question, right? Yeah. Do you think you know how much? How much do you think Trump the man matters versus like Trump the collection of political ideas in the current environment? Uh, I think very. I think he matters very little in the grand scheme of things. You know, I've been saying for a long time, Trump is basically Godzilla. He, he, you know, he, he, he crawls out from the water and he causes a lot of mayhem and we have to definitely deal with that. You know, I'm not diminishing the mayhem, but the real problem is all the nukes that we dunked into the ocean. You know what I mean? That that's, that's the real issue. And the other way that I've said it is, you know, on the evening, on the, the night before the election, in 2016, you know, I was hanging out with somebody and he asked me, what do you think? Is Trump going to win? And I, you know, t- to my, 
my naivete, I said, no, I don't think he's going to win. But, um, you know, when he loses, we will have dodged a bullet, and that's good. But uh, we still have the gun that fired it to worry about. And right, there's just right. going to be another bullet. And so that's the thing that I think is the problem here, is we're not recognizing that Trump is the manifestation of a number of symptoms to a larger problem that we, as long as we're dealing with Trump and thinking that he's the be all end all of the issue, that if we just, if we could just erase this, this guy from the face of the earth, that everything would go back to normal and sanity. I just don't think that's true. I think that the problem is bigger than that. And we, if we don't address it, we're just going to get another one and a probably a worse one. You know, he's just a carnival barker. He's a used car salesman. You know, I'm from New York and I've known about the guy forever and everyone around here pretty much kind of, you know, we know a million of those guys. You know <laughs> what I mean? So it's, it's not, he's not special in that way. He just, he showed up at the right time for the right type of disenfranchised people and it worked, right? And I, I sincerely doubt it will work again because those tricks are old at this point and the, the, the shock and, and you know, outrage is kind of unsustainable. Like you can't just continue to be shocked. It's kind of like Marilyn Manson, right? Like it gets boring after a while because how much, how much overstimulation is even possible, right? In that way. Uh, and when there's no substance to it, it just kind of dies down. Um, sorry, Marilyn Manson, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it was very shocking and, oh, you know, crucifixes and, and, you know, BDSM and all this stuff, but eventually it just kind of gets old and tired. And if there's nothing of substance behind it, then people will just get bored and move on to the next thing. Outrage right. doesn't the ability, last very long, you know. Yeah, the ability of these kind of visceral reactions to hold power seems to be uh, pretty close to zero. Yeah, people get numb to it, you know, and I think that's already happening. Like all his, he only has one way of being, right? And people already can. It's been so long. It's been so many years at this point that people, you know, people have dead on impressions. People can kind of anticipate what he might do or say. And so it's no longer fun. It's no longer shocking. It's just kind of like, oh, God, here we go with this guy again. Right, right. Yes, this is very important. You know, this, you know, maybe maybe some of my hardcore conservative viewers or listeners have already tuned out by now. But if you're at this point, (laughs) here is the thing that I want you to hear. Okay. Mm -hmm. Trump... At this point, you know, a very important component of Trump was that he was not boring. And Trump at this point is boring. Like, you just look at his speech, he's kind of succumbed to the same thing, right? In, in the early kind of comedy, in the early Trump presidency, right, or when he was first running as well, there was this problem with comedy, was that, which was that, like, they didn't know how to add material onto him, right? Yeah. You know, Trump was already so flagrant and so um, out there that they really couldn't add anything to it. And Trump has succumbed to the same thing, right? Trump cannot add anything to the meme of Trump. And if he wants to win another election, (laughs) he has to do that. And, you know, maybe I'll be proven wrong. Maybe he comes up with some, like, amazing thing that it doesn't involve, you know, you know, organized violence. But from everything that I can tell so far, and I mean, like, just watch watch the Trump announcement speech for yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, the title of the compact endorsement was like, he's, he's still the one, like, he's not still the one. I'm sorry. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, who knows? Uh, chaos reigns, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm I'm no prognosticator, but it seems to me that it, it's not going to be the same this time around because people are just kind of exhausted by it, at the very least. You know, even though it got everybody ratings, and even though it's you know, people some people seem to to take delight in being outraged at all the nonsense he was doing. I don't know, but for me, it's it's just. It's just that he was never the problem, you know. He was a problem, but really he was he was the symptom of a larger problem. And I've always tried to get at what that larger problem is. To me, that's it's the same larger problem as as what I think is undergirding the the battle for Twitter, you know, which is that that there is a complete lack of trust and a complete inability to communicate effectively between camps. And if we don't resolve that, we're just going to keep getting more of these problems and more of these Godzillas crawling out of the ocean. You know what I mean? Right. That was actually, that's actually perfect because I did want to bring you back. I wanted to ask you the question, right? What is the gun? So the, the gun, the gun is tribalism. The gun is the ability, inability to communicate across camps. Yeah. Is that yeah, what it is? It's, it's, I guess even more deeply, it's, the inability to understand people who live and see the world differently than you do, right? That's the fundamental thing between, you know, the, the so-called coastal elites and then the so-called flyover state people, right? Like oh, these, these divides where people feel like they can't, not only like they can't relate to one another, but that the existence of the other person is, is an abomination of sorts, right? Like yeah, how, yeah. Could you, so- how could you believe these things? How could you be this way? How could you see the world differently than I do? Mm, yeah, I, I, I want to add one addendum to this, is mm-hmm. that I think the divide used to be cities and rural areas, right? I think it's much less so now, because I've, through just like the coincidence of, you know, there are a lot of group chats where I am like the least conservative person, right? Um, and so all these people, you know, I know them in person, they live in cities, and right. so David Shore used to have this remark about like the old GOP consulting class, which was that usually because they all lived in cities, you know, they basically lived in boot areas that um, the left wing consulting class would be or like the left wing staffers, consultants and elected politicians and media people. They would all be to the left of the average uh, uh, Democratic Party voter. But the Republican staffers, because they're also living in blue areas, right, they would actually be closer to the center. Uh, but uh, I think that in, in recent years, this is this has changed that in part because of online, in part because of like practical things involving, you know, the Trump administration and involving like you know, really like kind of direct historical things in the past few years, the GOP media and staffer uh, complex has, you know, and, and if you're conservative, you might think that this is a good thing, but really has, has drifted away from that kind of, from that kind of, you know, accidental moderation, basically. So I think like the intra, intra-city divide is, is pretty significant as well, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's the case that, you know, city Republicans understand city Democrats to a very to a very large extent, probably still more than those in rural areas, 
But I think to the extent that that geographic divide, that intra-geographic divide exists, it has uh, been much, it it exists much more right now than it did even just like four years ago. Oh, yeah. No, I think that's right. I think that's definitely right. It's the subdivisions are not even as clear cut as, as I was framing it. You're totally right there. Right. I basically uh, agree with this case as well, but you should probably, uh, for, the, for the audience, what, is some, uh, what are some uh, data points that we can look at to show that partisans, this kind of divide actually exists, right? Uh, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have any numbers in front of me, but, you know, I can just tell you that just in conversation with people, you know, there are, I know, I know families who are kind of divided on politics in this way. You know, I, I, I no longer speak to my brother or I no longer speak to my parents because, oh my I, goodness. you know, they believe, they believe this or that. And that's, that's a, a, a strangely, to me, strangely common thing, you know, like, oh my God, no, we're not going to this person's birthday party because I saw them, you know, posting something favorable about Trump on, on Twitter or something. Right. And it's like, you know, on the one hand, I get it. Like if you think those views are abhorrent, you don't want to associate with people who hold them. I understand that, but it's also, you know, to me, it's, it's, it, the larger issue is like, well, but you don't even understand this person. Right. And, and my whole thing is trying to, trying to get into people's heads and understanding where they're coming from. You know, it doesn't mean I'm going to agree with them, but it does mean that, you know, if I understand them, then I, I have a higher probability of persuading them. And if I understand them, I have a higher probability of, of being more effective in how I oppose them. And so it always benefits me to be able to kind of sit down with somebody and talk to them and sort of restate their point of view in a way that they would say, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly why I think what I think. That's exactly why it matters to me. Because it just enriches my ability to understand and to act in the world in a way that's more effective, you know. So it seems to me very counterproductive, even though I I can get it on an emotional level. It seems to me to be really counterproductive to disassociate yourself from people that you disagree with, you know. Right, right. Uh, Sorry, go on. Well, uh, you know, then there's the whole thing of like, yeah, but this person's causing me harm and all that kind of stuff. And I understand that as well. Like, you know, you shouldn't tolerate abuse or of any kind. Um, but also we play fast and loose with what harm is and what abuse is. You know, some people have taken it to the point where, you know, merely holding a differing opinion is abuse and, and is harm. And, you know, that's, I think that's a bit too far. That makes that makes the situation totally untenable. Yeah. So, so what I wanted to ask for actually, you you'll like this. You'll you'll like this a lot. I think. Have you ever watched the the videos? Do you know who Tom Leung is? Tom Loom? No, I don't think so. Yeah, he he's uh he he runs a YouTube channel called I think Nerds for Humanity. It used to be Nerds for Yang. He's like this pro Andrew Yang guy, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but. Um, so he's really into like ranked choice voting. He was into UBI. I'm not sure how much he, he talks about that now. Um, mm-hmm. he's also kind of like, a establishment, basically like an establishment, uh, uh, Democrat, right? He, he believes in, he, he's, I think closer to the center economically, you know, typical, uh, uh, 
I think maybe actually a little bit closer to the center culturally as well, but um, very much, you know, anti, anti January 6th, anti stop the steal people, uh, anti, anti, anti vaxxers, I guess, you know, against anti vaxxers. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has, he has these conversations with his brother. I think his brother's name is Peter. Uh, I might be getting that wrong. Right. But he has this conversation. He has these conversations, these like semi-regular conversations with his brother who is like completely a Trump guy. Right. And uh. is like very, very kind of skeptical of, you know, quote unquote establishment narratives. Right. Some of which are true, in- including mm-hmm. some of which that are true. Um, and these conversations to me are just great to great to listen to because you have you have basically people who really do care about each other, I think. Right. Yeah who have, you know, the mainstream left and kind of the mainstream right or like the Trump, the mainstream Trump right kind of opinions, right? Not anything, you know, that out of the ordinary. Um, Obviously, there are things I disagree with with both of them, but that's basically you're having this like very human conversation uh, where they just, you know, they're not like completely... Um, they're not completely afraid to challenge each other, but they're also doing it in like this very, you know, intuitive way. And Mm -hmm. to me, like the, yeah, those are very worth listening to in terms of trying to overcome this divide. Um, that sounds great. Yeah. And I actually, there are are a lot of people in this space, you know, uh, Monica Guzman, John Wood Jr., Braver Angels in general, you know, this is an organization dedicated to doing this sort of stuff and facilitating this sort of stuff. Um, uh, you know, I try my best to do it as well. Daryl Davis is an, is a stellar example of somebody who just, you know, he, he, he puts his money where his mouth is and he shows just how much is possible when you approach with humanity and compassion, you know, uh, his, for those of you who don't know, uh, he is a jazz musician, uh, who, who has now deconverted, I think about 200 Klansmen. KKK members who, you know, you would imagine those are the most hopeless people in the world, right? Those, there's no hope there to change their mind. These people are so far gone. And yet he has, you know, 200 clan robes and pieces of paraphernalia that they have given him as a token of appreciation. Like, thank you. You saved me from this, you know? And, uh, uh, Daryl is a highly melanated person. He is, uh, <laughs> he, is, he is what, he is what people would call black. Uh, I don't use those terms, but uh, that's that's you know that's an important note here because of course the way that they're viewing him is through that lens, and yet he was able to deconvert these people. So it just goes to show, like you know, if he can do that, then you can talk to your brother who disagrees with you about Trump, right? Like it's totally possible, and the order is nowhere near as tall. So yeah, I think there's a lot of hope. I think there's a lot of there's a lot that can be done. We just need the will. People need the will to do it and the understanding that it's important. A question that I have is whether this is actually a sign of political divides or, I mean, these are not mutually exclusive, but whether these are primarily because of political divides or because of family, of the weakness of family bonds, right? Like there were, there were accounts and, you know, like I don't have any hard data on this, but there were accounts of people, of families that were split between Protestant 
and Catholic during during the Troubles, right? During these like these times of like actual political terrorism. And I mean, I, I obviously was not there. I don't know how strong the divide between Catholics and Protestants were, but you know, they were obviously strong enough for people to start planting bombs, right? And, and yet right. those family connections remained. And once again, like these are just accounts, but the way that they're portrayed historically don't seem to be that they're like completely out of the ordinary, the way that we think of, you know, basically people talking within their family about politics today. So it's at least, I think, a strong possibility that it's not just because the the political divides have amped up. Right, we're we're still seeing much fewer acts of political violence than during those times, but yeah. that at the same time, yeah. um, I yeah. think that uh, I, I I've seen surveys about not speaking to friends and family members due due to politics. I haven't seen any that are basically, or so I I haven't seen any that are just family members. But the rate mm-hmm. of friends and family members has been going up, right? Of disconnecting yeah. from them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, to to me, I'm not sure if that's due to, uh, I'm not sure how much of that is due to politics and how much of that is due to just weak family relations. Uh, do you have yeah. a balance of the two? Uh, I couldn't tell you. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a combination of both. You know, I, <laughs> I, you know, this is all anecdotal, of course. But uh, I've been told many times how strange it is that I get along so well with my siblings. Um, you know, I remember people saying, you know, when I would mention, oh, my brothers are my best friends. And they're like, oh, my God, really? I can't stand my brother, <laughs> you know, or like I haven't talked to my sister in years, you know, that kind of thing. And that to me is is unfathomable. Right. I couldn't imagine that. But it seems to be more common, at least in the people that I've encountered, it seems more common that they, they're, they have strained relationships with their family and sure, I guess politics just makes it worse or exacerbates, you know, what, what's already there. Um, but I think politics also just does it too. You know, it, there has, it has to be true that. Yeah, it definitely is true as well, because I've had people tell me that, you know, like I, uh, my brother and I were super close, but then, you know, 2016, like I haven't talked to him. Oh man. You know, I've had people tell me things like that. And so it does happen, you know, of course. Yeah. It's all anecdotal. I don't know about it at scale. I don't know. I don't know if it's a trend that, that should worry us, but I mean, I think even the fact that it happens at all is terrible and it should be addressed in some way. And I try my best to do that. Um, it's just, you know, the, the tribalism for sure is, is, a big, a big issue. And I think that, you know, social media and the way that we engage and just how prominent and important we make this stuff that does, that does sort of, you know, boost the signal quite a bit. So it's definitely something that we should be mindful of for sure. Right. I just want to register these for the audience. I I think that the kind of increasing partisanship data in terms of just is there increasing partisanship is there increasing you know cutting off of people due to political opinions i think it's uh quite established at this point there was 
Yeah. Um, the more uncommon data, which I know has been criticized somewhat, but I think should be taken as one data point of many. Uh, there's the, there's the entire Eric Kaufman report of uh, basically college students and academia. And uh, I think Braver Angels has put out some stuff as well. I can't remember off of the top of my head. And I've certainly seen many. This is one of the questions that Pew Research has mm-hmm. done as well, which is where I got the um, increasing rates of disconnecting uh, yeah. friends and family. So I do think this is a quite a sustained pattern. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, yeah, I'm just not a, I'm not a numbers and data guy. So I never. Yeah, had no worries. No worries. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I never you know, had those things in front of me. I probably should. Yeah, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. You know, like people, some people go on podcasts with like prep sheets, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't do you that. You don't have to. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. You know? <laughs> maybe I should. Maybe. I would hope. I, I've had some guests on here for like six hours. I would uh-huh. hope that you're like not not like frantically checking your prep sheet for six hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, no, I, you very generally be very people don't ask me for numbers. I think I've trained people enough. Like, oh, yeah, he doesn't have math. So, <laughs> but uh, this gets to I think maybe your most famous article. It's certainly the article that I heard of you for of of uh, strategy to solve this kind of partisanship. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is star manning? Uh, it is a fancy way of of packaging, um, you know, having compassion and uh, basically theory of mind, right? It's just recognizing that other people are coming from different upbringings, experiences, peer groups, teachers, you know, educations, mentorships, like all, all these things that, that kind of mix together and make them who they are and dictate how they're going to think about any particular issue or any way of being in the world. Um, but I guess to more, to ground it more, you know, the straw man is a fallacy, which is you, when you caricature somebody's point, uh, whether you do it intentionally or not, um, because it makes it easier to tear down, right? A straw man is just easy to beat up. It doesn't hit you back. It's weak. And what you should do is steel man, which is to present you know, the strongest possible interpretation of somebody's argument or the point they're trying to make. Um, And star manning goes a step further than that. And the reason that I felt the need to even write that piece and to try to give a name to the approach is because people were having such a hard time steel manning. They didn't want to, or they literally couldn't steel man, you know, the other person, the other person's argument, because they weren't just strawmanning the other person's argument. They were strawmanning the other person. They were, mm, they were creating yes, a caricature. A yeah, they were creating caricatures of the person who holds the argument, not just of the argument itself. And, you know, when you make a monster of the person who you're engaging with, I mean, monsters by definition are something that needs to be destroyed, vanquished. You know, you, you need to eliminate this. Um, and that's not that's not a good thing to do when what you're really talking about is people. You're really talking about human beings who just disagree with you. And they may disagree strongly, and the disagreement may hinge on something really consequential. So it's not to diminish any of that. But star manning is the recognition that they're for they're, you know, but for the grace of circumstance, basically, go you. You know, if you were them, if you had their upbringing and their experiences and their temperament and their psychology and their teachers and their education and 
all of the things that make people what they are, you would be them and you would be arguing the exact same thing. And so the key is, well, okay, you know, it's kind of what we were talking about a moment ago. If you really want to persuade somebody, or if you really want to be effective in your opposition of somebody, it makes sense to try to understand them more fully. If you truly understand why they think what they think, why they care about it, then you have a better chance of getting underneath that and breaking it down and then maybe persuading them. Or you have a better chance of, of you know, being more effective in your opposition because you really understand where they're coming from. So fundamentally, it's just the, the, the recognition that people have good intentions, which is not to say that, that the things they think aren't harmful or wrong or, or anything like that, but everyone believes that what they're doing is good and right and just. Almost nobody believes that their actions are doing harm and they're happy about that. Right. (laughs) Those people people are psychopaths and they're a very small fraction of the population. But the vast majority of people that you are likely to meet are people who are convinced that the way that they see the world and the way that they operate within it and the things that they are advocating for are good and right and just, or at the very, 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 very least, justifiable means to righteous ends. You know, they might say, yeah, I know this is kind of. I'm kind of breaking the rules here, but it's because of this thing that really matters that is so much more important and that is so good that it is worth me breaking the rules here. That's what star manning is. Star manning is just trying to, in in your engagement with people, explicitly acknowledge or search for and try to find with the other person. You know, what are the human core human desires that you share with this person, right? Like this person cares very much about their family and that's the thing that's motivating this argument. You know, or this person cares very much about freedom and democracy, and that's why they believe what they believe, because they think that this is the best way to achieve or preserve freedom and democracy. And if you can do that, then you're on better footing to disagree with them, and you're on better footing to understand them, and it, it prevents fault lines from occurring. You know, what, what you're doing is creating common ground instead. Right. It's a long-winded explanation, but <laughs> that's... Uh, it's good. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the thing that really improved my kind of experience talking to people about politics, or really about most things, um, is... You know, basically, I had a I had a very rough breakup. Not this was not related to politics. Actually, I had a very rough breakup, mm. and you know, I'm someone who has the disposition to take people take people at their word. You know, so if someone gives a reason for something, I usually think like, oh, okay, that that sounds kind of reasonable. I guess that's why that's why you believe the thing that you believe, right? But this kind of experience. And basically, it was an experience where there was a lot of flip-flopping, right? Where um, uh, my now ex-girlfriend was very much, you know, unsure about, uh, unsure about really like most most major life decisions, right? Almost all major life decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, I was reading. I was reading, you know, everywhere from this, this. This isn't too related. This was like a. This is like a few months afterwards. But I was reading anywhere from 
Edward Teach, who I already recommended earlier, um, so people like Lacan, people like um, even like very mainstream uh, psychologists like Jung, right? And basically slowly coming to the understanding that people are, I don't want to say dishonest because they kind of don't realize that they're doing it, mm-hmm. but people are not very forthcoming with their actual reasons for believing things. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, you know, especially in the current day, before there were a lot of rationalized or not rationalizations, this is like a completely wrong way of thinking of it, but there were a lot of excuses before that were like, that were acceptable that are no longer excuses now. Right. So a lot of, for a lot, for example, like with, with faith, a lot of people would say like, this is my faith. I've come to believe it through, you know, revelation. And that now this is seen as much less acceptable. And so a lot of our reasons that we are, that people believe are, are now like, you know, there, there's a lot more similarity between someone who believes things due to, due to like a, a single personal experience due to basically like their observations from those around them, from just how they've lived their life, from someone who they trust, maybe that they grew up with, right? There's a lot of, there's, there are a lot of metaphors that are much closer to that than to any analog today that have now been lost to time, basically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are all these reasons that people believe things don't necessarily like quote unquote rational, but that are, but they're very intuitive and very human. And, you know, you, you can't really, you can't really, you, you can try to convince people otherwise, but you can't really just look at these things and say, you know, I'm not going to bother with people who behave, uh, quote unquote, irrationally, right? Yeah. There's always this circumstance, and you always have to deal with the possibility at the very least, that people are coming to, uh, to their beliefs for reasons that are like, you know, reasons that are not available directly to you right reasons that are not uh you know kind of observable from just by looking at them or like reading the wikipedia page and that when you're in the circumstance you have to there are two things that people do right one thing is to try to like cram this into like a rationalist box Mm. where they're like all right justify you know like it's like facts don't care about your feelings which is like maybe how policy decisions could be made but, you know, if you're trying to actually talk to someone, that's not a very good strategy because right. at worst, you know, or maybe this is at best, they'll just stop talking to you. And at worst, they'll give you like reasons. They'll just lie about their actual reasons for believing in something. Mm-hmm. There'll be much more, you know, much more human reasons for believing in something. And they'll try to come up with, you know, some kind of high minded version of that. Right. And when they do that, right, they're not only not only are they kind of not being upfront with with their basically their humanity, but they're creating all of these, you know, like someone the best example of this is like, you know, uh what was what was it? Uh, Dominion ballots, right? Like I don't know a single person who actually, you know, has has gone and has, you know, looked at the Dominion ballot voting machines and been like, you know what? I'm really convinced. I'm really convinced by the weight of evidence here. No, no, no. The actual reason is because they don't feel like their candidate did not get a fair shot uh, in the media and all these other systems in in life around them. And, you know, in their life, in their life, they don't feel like they're getting a fair shot either. And you know what? Maybe that all comes together to make them think that the election was stolen. Right. But but it's not it's not the fucking Dominican voting machines 
or the, 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 the Dominion voting machines, right? I was going to say Dominican yeah. voting machines. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know <laughs> if there are people who believe that either. The Dominion voting machines, I should be clear, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the, it's, yeah, the facts don't care about your feelings. Sure. That's true. But, but people have feelings and yeah, the facts exactly, affect, exactly. the facts affect their feelings and the feelings sometimes prevent them from seeing the facts or affect the way that they see the facts. And that, mm. that's something that if you are in the, if you are in the business of trying to persuade people or, or influence people or just engage effectively with people in one way or another, whether it's, whether it's influence or opposition, uh, you need to understand that, right? You're not going to divorce people from their feelings. Like there's no, there's no, there's no method that is going to, you know, turn everyone into Spock and everyone can just (laughs) sit down and have a perfectly cold and dispassionate conversation. You know, some people are, are more able to do that sort of stuff than others. And that's okay. But you need to recognize what you're dealing with, which is, you know, we are we are emotional beings, mm. and that's that's something that you know I I took a, it took a long time for me to really deal with that because I'm I'm somebody who likes I'm like I'm somebody who really likes to think about things, right? I like to yeah, kind of yeah. what I I do for fun. I sit there, and I'm sure you're like this too. This is kind of this is kind of a, a prerequisite, I think, for being in this space that we occupy. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I, I like sitting there and just pondering things and I like breaking things down and I like trying my best to be dispassionate and objective. And, you know, you know, I, I, this doesn't make me feel good, but it's the reality and I have to just accept that and I'll deal with that tension internally. You know, I, I'm somebody who kind of enjoys doing that, but not everybody does. Right. And not everybody really examines themselves in that way. And I don't mean that to be insulting. I just mean that, you know, it's not how people operate. Some people like different kinds of music. Some people like different kinds of ways of being. Not everybody likes to sit there and kind of analyze their thoughts in the way that, in the way that I do. Right. And that's okay. And so, you know, you're talking about people not being forthcoming about their reasons. They may not really even know their reasons. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. You know, they may not have reasons. All they have is a feeling and they're just going with their gut there. And when you ask them for reasons, that's the first time they're actually trying to figure out some way of encapsulating it and then articulating it to you, you know? Mm, so yeah. There's a lot of leeway that you need to give people because not everybody's in the same place with respect to, you know, why they arrive at their conclusions or why they hold the beliefs that they hold, right? Some people just have a hunch, like, I just don't trust Biden, you know? I just don't trust the guy. Like he seems, I don't know, something about that guy seems sneaky, right? And then you hear about the the Hunter Biden laptop thing, or you hear about this or that, or you know, you get a you get a news story that's framed in a particular way, and then you go, "Aha! This confirms that gut feeling that I had, right?" And then you know, then you you also ignore a bunch of other stuff, or you ignore the stuff about your guy, you know. And it's just people are acting on those intuitive things and those emotional things way more than they're acting on their rational things. It's why we have science, right? It's why we have science as a kind of methodology is because we can't trust ourselves to be objective. We can't trust ourselves to be unbiased. We have to have some kind of outside mechanism that checks for those things. And we need to kind of do it by committee. We need other people to check the people who are checking, you know, just to make sure that measurements are right and that sort of stuff. So, you know, getting back to 
star manning and persuasion and stuff like that. That's the fundamental thing you have to recognize. Like this is a person, this is a human being who has feelings and who feels very strong, excuse me, who feels very strongly about things. Um, and you need to get at that if you're going to have any kind of effect, you know, and just imagine somebody doing it to you. Like, how would you like someone to approach you about the things that you strongly believe and that you, that you feel very powerful and, and passionate about, you know, it, there's a, there are better and worse ways to get at these things. And so if you want to be effective, you have to approach them with that knowledge. Like this is a human being. They love people. They have people who love them. They have causes that they care about and they have reasons for those causes. They have things that are motivating them. You have to find those. You have to connect with those because that's what you would want. That's what you would want someone to understand about you and the things you care about, you know? Right. So let's, let's try to do this, right? Okay. Or let's give some tips to all of the listeners out there. Sure. Um, let's maybe do this in, I think, increasing order of difficulty for them. <laughs> okay, this is good. Okay, okay. How do you, uh, how do you starman someone who is uh, classically liberal, right? Uh, and I know you said you don't like labels, but like in general, there are people who, who like apply those labels to themselves, right? We can look at those mm -hmm. people. How would you, how would you star man classical liberals? What, what do you really need to try to understand from their perspective? Um, hmm. Well, I think the one thing that I should say here is that it's a little bit difficult to do it at this level of abstraction. Right. Um, because there's so many people that fall under this umbrella and, you know, anything that I say might, might immediately sort of disqualify some and then not others and et cetera. Um, and really the thing about star manning is that it should be kind of, as you're interacting with the actual person, the, the individual, you should be asking questions or you should be trying to get at it and have them confirm it for you. So, um, the, you know, what we're doing here is kind of hypothetical and I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get at it the best I can without that confirmation. But, you know, um, I think that one thing that could be said is, you know, these people believe in free expression. They believe in free speech. They believe in, you know, enlightenment values. And the reason they, they care about those is because let's say, you know, they recognize what what life is like or has been like for people who live under different circumstances, who do not have the ability to speak, who do not have the ability to protest, who do not have uh, those enlightenment values. Maybe they live in a more oppressive society. Maybe they aren't flourishing in the way that we know that they could. And so it's it's those fundamental values of, you know, trying to enhance flourishing, trying to make sure that people and that our society is as good as possible and that people benefit as much as possible from modernity and you know progress happens because we have the ability to uh, freely exchange ideas and find find things that are not working and work out together what what might be a better way forward um, and just keeping those lines of communication open i think I think that's probably what's motivating them is just that this this makes the world a better place. This this makes things easier to correct. This makes for human flourishing. 
uh, in a way that isn't isn't possible in other paradigms, you know. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's all general because we're talking about a huge group of people, but but that's where I would probably start. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe this kind of exercise. Hmm. Here's maybe a better way to go about this. Right? Okay. So would you say that you've gotten better at star manning across across the years? Uh, I hope so. I try my best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what has what are some situations where you came to understand someone in this way that that really like led you to I think learn how to do it, develop it as a kind of like really as a skill, right? Oh yeah. Well, really the the thing is just getting hit with reality just over and over again. Uh just being wrong so many times that I've I developed a kind of reflex uh where now <laughs> you know like like I tell I I've told this a lot but basically literally every time that I have decided you know what I'm going to tell this person off I'm tired of of the way that you know they're treating me and uh, I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm tired of being walked on. And so I'm going to tell this person off. And then I, I lash out and I say something terrible. And then I realize when they respond that I had misunderstood something or misinterpreted something, something I didn't know. And I was totally wrong to react the way that I did. And I felt really bad about that. And so I realized, oh man, like I can't necessarily trust my perception. I have to always be on guard because I might make a mistake. And, you know, I feel bad about making people feel bad. I feel bad about lashing out. I feel guilty about that stuff. So uh, I've developed, after doing that so many times, I've developed this reflex of like, okay, hold on a second. What am I missing? What am I not understanding? How many other possible explanations could there be for this? You know? Mm. And um, so it's that. And also just recognizing Recognizing that in myself has caused me to to try and recognize it in other people as well. And so, for example, you know, I was maybe 10 years ago, I was somebody who was very much like, you know, uh, you can will things into being, you can, you know, <laughs> if, if you don't, if you don't succeed, it's because you didn't work hard enough. I, I had a very kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, you know, where it's like, don't be lazy, you know, get up and go do something, you know, don't, that kind of thing. Um, and it took me a long time to realize, well, I'm not, I'm not accounting for, uh, you know, certain privileges that I have. Uh, and I know that, that that's a kind of trigger word for a lot of people. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what I mean is, you know, I'm a, I'm a fairly smart guy and I have an intellect that allows me to assess things and to operate in a certain way that other people have different ways of being and, and doing. Um, it's not necessarily that I'm smarter than anybody else. I don't really think I am, but you know, I have, I'm a creative person, right? I have these creative skills. I, I can sing, I can play music, I, I can write, you know, and that allows me to do things that other people who don't have those proclivities cannot do. Right. And I, I didn't account for that. I just thought, no, I made myself you know, and, and that's not true. Like I didn't, I didn't choose my, my creativity from a buffet before I was born. You know, I was just born and I just happened to have this temperament. Right. And I also, you know, I happened to be lucky enough to have two parents who were, you know, very, um, very well educated and fairly successful. You know, they were, they're immigrants and they, you know, their struggles and all that sort of stuff. 
But, you know, I mainly grew up in a house in the suburbs, right? So that allowed me to have the time and space to be an artist rather than, you know, I need to get a job when I'm 16 so that I can help pay rent because we're all struggling here. That would have been a different circumstance. And I didn't, I didn't pick that either. I was just lucky to have been bequeathed it. And so I, I started to recognize that more and more over the years. And I started to realize, oh, I can't take as much credit for myself as I thought I could. And I also can't look down on people the way that I was because everybody's circumstance is different, right? So that's, that's the, kind of the origins of this stuff. And yeah, so I changed my mind on that. I changed my mind on, you know, suicide. Like, you know, I had this, oh. this brief moment of, uh, of kind of saying, you know what, if, if you quit, I have no sympathy for you. You're a quitter. You know, I kind of had that Ooh. attitude. And, you know, it didn't last very long because, you know, when you, when you recognize the pain that people are going through, you realize, no, this is something fundamentally different that you just don't understand, you know? And I've had my moments of, of being really depressed and all that kind of stuff, but never to a level where I seriously considered something like that. And it took me a lot to, to recognize and to have compassion for the level of agony that some people are really in and the circumstances that make drive somebody to do something like that. You know, so it's pretty serious stuff, but I, I just had a very naive worldview that I thought, you know, well, if you're a quitter, then, you know, screw you. Like some people, some people out there are just clawing through mud to like stay alive. And then you're just opting out. I have no sympathy for you, you know? And I, I just, now I recognize that as an incredibly callous way of viewing things, you know? So it's a slow prog progression. It, it was a lot of kind of thinking and work and learning and feeling stupid that I had to go through. But those are just a couple of examples of ways that I, I had to shift my perspective. Right. What, I mean, when it comes to suicide, there's, uh, actually I do this for almost zero issues, but you know, this might be the exception. You know, if you don't want to talk about it, then that's fine. We'll cut this, cut this out, you know? Um, but when it comes to suicide, right, and the more recent developments uh, in in Canada, where where I am sitting right now, oh yeah, yeah, you know, you can hear the cold if you listen closely. You can hear the cold <laughs> winter breeze, or uh, maybe a little bit more than a breeze outside. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, there's a fight to legalize um, euthanasia, right? Legalize euthanasia, including for uh, mental health reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that is a situation where people are being given the ability to act with their own volition. Right. And, you know, in many circumstances, that own volition is to do something that would be unimaginable and would be really horrifying to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, how do we deal with that kind of situation, right? Should, should, first of all, should this be a kind of legal, legal option? Mm -hmm. And how do we, how do we try to put ourselves in the perspective of someone like that and maybe prevent it? Yeah. I, 
well, first of all, I can't pretend to have the answers to this. This is incredibly difficult stuff. Um, and you know, here here comes the star manning. Actually, is you know the people who are engaged in this in this debate on either side, both of them have something in common, which is that they care very much about the people in question, right? Mm, they right. they are they are feeling immense immense levels of compassion for the people who are suffering and struggling and are in, caught in the middle of this argument, right? Both of them are, and they're just arriving at different conclusions about what, what is best to do in that circumstance, right? So uh, it's, it's really, really hard because I can imagine a scenario where somebody is just suffering so much that it would be, you know, at least from their point of view, it would be the compassionate thing would be to end that suffering, right? But the my my instincts just this is just my personal thoughts on this, and I haven't really thought about it too much um, in terms of like what I would do or anything like that in terms of this, you know, policy and stuff like that. But uh, the problem is that you know once you do it, it's over, and there's no coming back, and there's no fixing it, and there's no there's no you know oh I realized I was wrong, and let me just rewind the tape here. Like we can't do that, right? So we have to be very, very careful about making this extremely, you know, consequential, permanent decision. Uh, and I think I'm sure that everyone is mindful of that, but maybe there are other things that are sort of, um, you know, affecting people's judgment in that way where, you know, they feel like, no, this is the height of compassion. It's just allowing people to do this. But it's sort of, it's sort of a thing where, you know, well, I remember being told in, in school, and this might be facile, but, you know, I remember being told in school, you know, we, uh, in some program where we're talking about this sort of thing, and they're saying it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem, suicide. And there's some truth to that, right? Like, the, you know, it's it's very possible that you'll get through whatever it is that you're getting, you're going through now, and that you'll one day be on the other end of it. And it's very possible that there are, there are, you know, resources and institutions and things that can be done to aid you through so that you do make it to the other side in one piece. And then you're glad you're, that you're glad that you made it, Right. Um, but you know, it's hard for people to see that in the moment when they're feeling this and they're just so overwhelmed with grief and pain and depression, it's really hard for them to see, right? So they may not, they may not see that light at the end of the tunnel, right? They may not, they may not believe it. They may not think that it's even possible. And so I think it's really important for those of us outside of that to do everything we can, I think, to ensure that you know we can help these people without resorting to that I, basically i just think that you know that should be if if it's a, if it's an option at all which i don't I, I really don't know how i feel about that but if it's an option at all it should be an absolute last last option you know like everything else has been exhausted and all you're seeing is just immeasurable pain and misery from this person. And it becomes the only thing that you can imagine doing, 
that will ease that. You know, that that's the only way that I would even consider it. And even then I'm not sure. Because once you once you sort of institutionalize it in this way, it becomes way too easy. And I just I don't know. That's a it's a really hard one. I don't know. I don't know if that makes any sense or if it's, <laughs> I don't know if it's, it's a useful. Yeah, it, it does. Clip, but so, yeah. I mean, like I might cut this out in post editing, uh, not, okay. not your answer. It was, I, at least for me, there was nothing. I, you know, I didn't have anything against that answer, but like, I might cut out what I'm, I'm going to say. Okay. <sighs> because, you know, like, this is a very good example of like kind of an obviously irrational belief that I hold, mm. which is like very kind of ex- experiential. But you know, I, I kind of believe that you you should try it normally if you really do want to try it, right? <laughs> which is, and I believe this because this is like my own experience, like five, five, no, four or five years ago. You know, I was very suicidal and, you know, actually I'm, I would, I would, I would give the warning of like, you know, do not extrapolate, right. You know, um, what's the saying? Every, every, every happy family is happy for the same reasons, but every miserable one is different. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I I would not like overgeneralize. I would just say this is one example. Mm -hmm. Right. But you know, I ha- I basically had. Oh, why am I saying this? Of course, you don't. You've never heard this story before. No, no one on the internet has heard this story before, and you know, for good reason, right? Only like two or three people in real life have heard the story before. So, I don't know. You know, this is kind of the safety of not doing this live. Is that I could I could cut this out in post. <laughs> I could. Yeah, it's up you to know. you. It's up to you. I, but, I totally get it. It's this is yeah. rough stuff. It's rough stuff. Yeah, my my approach to, to fuck my whatever. This is like you know, this is the this is the verbiage of the podcast. This is like the the, the rational the rationalization of obviously like irrational uh, decision. But like yeah. basically, like the the way I saw of it is like there was actually there was this there was this Japanese short story called An Invitation to Thanatos, which has recently been like super popularized by this Japanese pop song. Mm-hmm. Um, based on the based on the story i'm gonna link this i'm gonna link this in the show notes you know i'm gonna tell all of my audience listeners you know listen to the song first before reading the lyrics and then or like listen to the song now because i'm gonna kind of vaguely i'm gonna talk about the short story which is related to the lyrics which is basically the same as the lyrics you know and mm-hmm. like try to guess what the song is about and you you probably won't be able to get get it but mm-hmm. um so, so the premise of the story is something like this, right? Um, and it's told it's told in a much better way than I can tell it, but I'm just going to try to tell it from memory. Uh, is that, you know, it's a first-person story. The story goes um, from, from the main character's perspective. Uh, I, I received a text from this girl who was saying just, just one word, goodbye. And I remember, uh, I remember this was like the first time that I met her. Uh, she was in the same circumstance. We were at, I just moved into this new, very sad building. Uh, in Japan, they call these like black buildings of uh, basically people who are overworked, you know. And 
uh, I met her on, I met her, and this is, I should be clear to my audience, this is a fictional story. Uh, I met her on this, uh, on the rooftop where she was saying the same kinds of things to me. Uh, in this world, there are two types of people, those ruled by Thanatos and those ruled by Eros. And those ruled by Thanatos, uh, who is, I think, the Greek, Greek, no, Nordic, I don't know. He is some god of death. Mm-hmm. And those ruled by Thanatos have a reaper, uh, someone who drives them to their, to their desires. And so this was this th- this was the same as the first time I met her, and and by this point it's been it's happened dozens of times. Uh, and he she keeps telling me about about this world of Thanatos, uh, and how wonderful how wonderful it is, and. I, I don't remember the exact, the, you know, the exact pace of the story, but the the idea of the story is that you know slowly this girl convinces him that it is a good idea, and you know it's it the ending is left kind of ambiguous, but one possible ending, you know, one possible interpretation of the ending is uh, that they both die, and the reason this is the likely interpretation is uh basically at the end the, the the twist the twist is that at the end you know after they both go go into the night that's the exact word that's the exact phrasing that they use you know they repeat you know the the narrator at this point repeats the line in this world there are two types of people those ruled by eros and those ruled by thanatos and those ruled by thanatos uh have reaper uh, in, in the song version, in, in the Japanese pop song, they make this explicit, right? They they commit to the ex- ending and say that you know she was his reaper, that she uh-huh. is basically someone who was a manifestation of of his desire in this way. Hmm. Now I have just I have just told for around five minutes, you know this this Japanese story connected to this random famous Japanese pop song. How does this relate? Well, because. I was basically in a circumstance where for pretty much psychological and neurological reasons, uh, and I'm still kind of in this circumstance where I don't really feel happiness very strongly at all. Um, I would have Mm. described it then as I don't feel it at all whatsoever. I'm kind Mm. of getting slowly an appreciation, you know, for just speaking with people for, you know, for friendship and that kind of thing. But back then, I, the, the way that I would say it is that I literally cannot feel happiness. Mm-hmm. And you know, like this is a very, this is a very romantic thing. You know, suicide was a very romantic thing. It was a thing that was like, it was very much like the story. It was very much this like alluring thing, a thing that had, um, that was a temptation, and that had this kind of like almost, almost romantic type of desire right this kind of fantastical desire mm-hmm. and so you know i i think that there's i think the kind of step change that happens after after i attempted to kill myself and did not succeed is that you know this fantasy kind of disappears you learn that there's no solution you learn that, like, and I mean, like, this is also not purely rational, right? Like, how do you know there's no solution? Like, what if you did succeed, right? What if you, you know, what if you tried again and you succeeded? Maybe that's a solution. But, you know, like, this is, like, something that I'm convinced of, not really rationally, but, 
you know, those emotions just kind of disappear. That romanticization just kind of disappeared mm -hmm. because, you know, you know, that's just what that kind of failure does to you. Yeah. And, you know, from, from there, like, I should just leave this as a very short addendum. Like, from there, my kind of moral philosophy changed a lot, used to be much more libertarian. Now it's much more based on, you know, obligations and duties that you have to your, to your family, to your people, to, to just the people, you know, right. To your community, to those around you, yeah. much more of a kind of, uh, honestly, like I see this as much more of an Eastern philosophy, much more of one of basically the importance of these, these connections rather than of like you know just like freedom right mm -hmm. which was uh which was certainly a phase i had back then <laughs> yeah but th th all of this is to say you know i have this i mean like once again th there's this is very easy to poke holes into but that's because i believe it for basically like irrational reasons of like saying having these kind of transformational experiences, these kind of experiences of failure and not just, you know, having injecting yourself with a drug that has a 100% chance of like actually killing you. Mm -hmm. Right. This kind of uncertainty, like that, that's one of the main counter arguments, right. Is yeah. that, you know, if you don't, if you don't let these people die by like lethal injection or whatever method that they use, right. They'll right. die in like these kind of more grotesque, yeah more more visceral ways and it's like yes yes that is the point you know you have this uncertainty you have this failure you have this thing that mm. is actually you know of, of course it has a chance to kill you right mm -hmm. but also there's a chance that you are you're transformed by this um yeah and you know this is like a very you know like there are very obvious kind of arguments to this i won't address all of them or maybe not any of them <laughs> yeah yeah. You know, but that is, yeah. you know, in this cursed internet world, I have no words to author, offer, but that this is my take on it. No, it's, this is why it's, a, it's such a difficult thing. I, I totally get where you're coming from there. And thank you for, for sharing that with me. I don't know if this will end up in the podcast, it's up to you, but um, I, I appreciate that you felt, you felt comfortable enough to talk, talk about it. Um. I don't take that lightly and I, you know, I'm no professional in this space at all. I have no, I have nothing but my own intuitions to share. Um, and, you know, there is the kind of case of, you know, terminal illness or extreme illness that is just, you know, um, just indescribably painful for people. And also there's the cost of it and the the burden on the family and that sort of stuff like that to me is where that's where um those are the kinds of situations that I have thought about more and those you know I've been more exposed to that sort of argument from that place and I I I feel like maybe I'm more amenable to that for those reasons right like I can see how how someone who's suffering from, you know, just a horrible, just bone cancer or something like that. I can see how that might be the humane thing. And, you know, the difficulty, I guess, across the board is just recognizing like 
you know, how do we determine whether somebody has the, the, you know, the requisite presence of mind to make such a decision, right? Because they're, they're in, they're clearly in a place of distress and that's almost by definition, a place where rational decisions can't really be made. Right. So, so I don't know. Um, but certainly I don't think we should be hasty about it. I don't, I don't think we should be cavalier about it at all because it's such a final thing. You know, there is no coming back from screwing this up. Uh, right. I mean, this is the kind of hard problem of, um, it's the hard problem of tolerance, right? You know, will people's lives really be better off if you tolerate, if you allow, um, if you don't enforce, you know, them killing themselves, right? Or you don't enforce a law preventing them from killing themselves. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's know, a hard it's, problem. It's really, really difficult. We're not going to solve it here for sure. Um, but you yeah. know, when you were talking about your philosophy changing and this idea of duty to others, um, that reminded me of something else that I saw, some meme probably, of just saying, you know, it, suicide doesn't end the pain. It just transfers it to somebody else. And, mm, yeah. and that, that really struck me. Like I, I was never, you know, I, I, I was definitely depressed for a long time. I definitely had, you know, probably undiagnosed depression for many, many years. Um, thinking back on it, you know, it makes sense. But um, I never got to the point where I was like seriously considering ending it. For some reason that, that was, you know, I never stepped through that door. Uh, I always kind of felt that, that, that reflexive sort of, no, I, I don't want to go that far. But, um, but that, that really struck me. And it, I think because it appealed to my compassion for others, you know, and I think that, you know, if it, to the extent that it works, that that sort of statement has an effect on other people, it's because it's probably for that reason as well. It's probably because they, they can feel, oh yeah, like think about the pain that I'm causing to all the people that I love. I don't want to do that. Uh, and then that might be a way out, you know, it's, it's possible anyway, for you to think of it, oh, you know, I'm not just living for myself, I'm living for other people as well. You know, the relationships are meaningful, the commitments are meaningful, the experiences are meaningful. And then maybe that kind of leads you towards some sense of, you know, purpose outside yourself that, that keeps you from devolving into that headspace where you're like, there's no point and I don't want to do this anymore. You know, of course, that's that's just me kind of thinking out loud right now. And I don't I don't presume to know what it's like to go through what people are going through who are in this position or even thinking about this. Um, but what I do know for sure is that haste is definitely the the wrong the wrong thing here. You know, we should be extremely careful with what we're doing because it's you know the stakes couldn't be higher. So yeah, I mean, yeah. this is the kind of Durkheim. Uh, argument, right? Emil Durkheim, he was a psychologist all back in the day, right? One of the founding fathers of psychology, basically. And he not just did these kind of numerical studies, but he went and talked to hundreds of people. He had a particular interest in suicide. And I think most of this holds up, right? Uh, It's been replicated nowadays with modern methods. And they find that, yeah, people, you know, they don't just commit suicide because of um despair or because of depression but because of a lack of rootedness 
right? Anomi right. is just is the term he uses. Um, yeah. popularized by a certain other Canadian. But <laughs> I think it's good that it's this kind of understanding is more popular. This is kind of like the this is like the strong case for a sort of soft communitarianism, social conservatism, that kind of thing is that like going back to the original, what we kind of started this off with, right? Mm -hmm. Strong bonds, strong bonds make for free conversations, right? If you have these, if you have this kind of trust, if you have this kind of rootedness with a family member, with, even just like the people, whoever you're talking with, right? With your friends, your family mm-hmm. member, or it's mm-hmm. like, then that gives you more of a freedom, more of an understanding to explore different areas without, without, you know, the assumption of bad faith, basically yes, without exactly. like these kind yeah. of patterns of, um, of, uh, you know, escalation, Exactly. Of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, it's, um, that's kind of what, what star manning is meant to foster, right? It's, right. it's let's, let's stop and remind ourselves and each other that we're human beings here and that we have so much in common and let's use that common ground as a place that, you know, we could kind of set up base here and then we can sort of venture out together into this territory where we may not we may not agree on, on this or that, but we can always come back to the thing where, yeah, you know, but you know what? Yeah. Like you, you know, family is important to you and family is important to me. And that's kind of where we're coming from. That's a good thing to know, you know? And the thing about like the, you mentioned the, um, the, the podcast where the guy is talking to his brother and they disagree about stuff. They have this fundamental relationship where they're siblings and they love each other and they know each other in that way. You know, I'm I'm guessing a little bit, but I'm I'm sure I'm not off the mark. You know, they they have a they have a strong bond as siblings, and they have things that they have in common. I'm sure they, you know, they go to the movies together, or they go to concerts together, or they just hang out and have a beer or whatever. And there's that basis upon which they can they can have their disagreement, and that makes their disagreement fundamentally less toxic and less destructive to their relationship. You know, because the entire time that they are disagreeing strongly about this or that policy or, you know, whether Trump is good or bad or whatever, you know, there's an undercurrent of I love you. You're my brother. I see you as a whole human being. Uh, and I think that, you know, star manning and whatever, whatever other method you want is meant to try and help people foster that with strangers. Where you know, the recognition is that you don't need to have had um, an entire childhood with somebody to build upon or to establish that sort of, you know, uh, common ground upon which you can set up your base and then venture out together. You know, all you really need to do is recognize that we're all human beings and that we're all fundamentally wired in the same way. We all want the same things at bottom. You know, everyone wants safety, security, satisfaction, and success. You know, however those things manifest for you, the, there's they vary wildly, right? There's so much diversity there, but but the point is that you can always drill down to those core things because humans are humans. We're wired in a certain way, right? Like it's just as safe an assumption as you know, you and I. Within the next twenty four hours, we will be hungry and we will be sleepy 
You know, like that's just going to happen because we know how people work. We know how our bodies work, right? And human beings in terms of their psychology, in terms of their, you know, sort of temperaments and stuff, they vary. But at the bottom, all we're trying to do is live a good life. All we're trying to do is avoid suffering or head towards flourishing. All we're trying to do is make things as good for ourselves and the people we care about as we can. That's just true for everyone except, you know, psychopaths. And and even even those people deserve compassion because they're not psychopaths because they decided to be. They're psychopaths because something's something's wrong. Like something is, you know, the wires are crossed. Something is messed up. And you know, it doesn't mean you don't stop them from harming people or anything like that, but it does mean that you recognize, yeah, they are the product of circumstance just as much as you are. And that's that's just something that I think people need to be reminded about. And that's what I'm trying to do is, is just remind them, hey, you know, that person that you're yelling at or that person that you're spewing invective at, you know, from your phone, uh, that's a human being. That's a person. And they have a family. They, they care about things. They care about people. People care about them. And that should change the way that you behave. You know, these are not monsters. Right. I think this this gets to like two types of errors, right? One is the kind of tribalism that kind of bonds over basically dunking on other people. Yeah. <laughs> and right. another, which I think I'm much more kind of guilty of, is that I try to keep the personal out of it as much as possible, right? Like this, mm-hmm. this is obviously an exception, like the stuff I've talked about on this podcast, I mean. Um, but, you know, most of the time I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, you know, you know how this podcast started. How about what, what's this abstract idea? You know, mm-hmm. who, what's, what matters if it's not, you know, a universal principle, but of course this, you know, like you said, it runs up against human nature. It runs up against how people actually make decisions. And yeah. at the end of the day, I'm not sure how useful it is in terms of like actually saying like how the world will work. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe this is a good way of testing this idea. I think a lot of the time people have a lot of the time, the argument against this is like urgency, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, if we don't, if we don't dunk on these people or if we don't, you know, they wouldn't use that word. They would say, <laughs> if right. we don't show, if, if we don't show exactly how evil these people are, then, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to do, pa- they're going to take power and they're going to do all of these terrible things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like some, sometimes people do, people do make bad policies, right? That's how I would put it, you know, sure. right. I wouldn't use the same words, but I do think people do, you know, make policy mistakes and those have consequences. So is there a chance that, you know, like by doing this, you're actually by creating or by allowing for this greater understanding that, you know, you're tipping the scales in favor of the wrong side? Yeah, I just think that it's, it's counterproductive to that, that very goal. You know, even if urgency is, is you know, the thing you want to harp on. Uh, well, okay. I mean... Because of the urgency, the stakes are incredibly high to make sure you get it right, right? And so that would re- that should require you to to 
be very thoughtful about what exactly you're doing and how you're doing it and what the potential effects are of what you're doing. You know, so then, you know, the urgency in my view makes dunking even less practical. It's a, it's, it's less sensible because we don't have time for this nonsense, right? Like we have to really do something here. Um, and you know, a lot of people kind of misinterpret the things that I advocate for and the things that I say as being soft or rolling over and just taking things or, you know, uh, singing Kumbaya with Nazis. That's something that some people say, you know, and that's, that's ridiculous. That's not at all what I'm saying. You should fight, you should fight very strongly for the things that you believe in. You should oppose things that you think are wrong and you should say so. You should be vocal about that. But the way that you do it matters. You know, so are you going to be vocal about a policy that you disagree with? And are you going to articulate precisely why you believe that policy is wrong or how it will be harmful? Or are you going to do the thing that most people are doing, which is to say, the policy is wrong and you are evil and I'm going to focus on destroying you because if I destroy you, I destroy the policy, right? That's kind of where people seem to be coming from is if I just make you ineffective, if I just, if I just somehow prevent you from acting, then I will have solved the problem. But of course, what happens is that, you know, that person is not the only person who believes in the policy that you're against. Right. So you have to do it over and over again. And you're creating enemies. You're creating people who are now going to fervently hit you back just as hard as you hit them. And then you're in this never ending sort of back and forth where you're not actually talking about the policy and you're not actually addressing it and you're not actually coming up with solutions. You're just, you've just turned it into this kind of war of attrition, you know? Seems more sensible to me to say, okay, look. I think this policy is a really bad idea. Uh, here are the reasons why. But I get why you want this policy. You want this policy because these are the things that you care about. These are the things that you think the policy will achieve. So rather than have us fight and me try to dominate you and you try to dominate me, why don't we try to figure out how we can both get the things that we want? Like, How about I can show you the things that I'm concerned about? And you can show me the things that you're concerned about, and we can figure out together some other way that will avoid the things I'm concerned about and that will avoid the things you're concerned about. But we still sort of achieve this goal, right, of, you know, whatever it is, right? Like, it doesn't matter. And it might be really, really difficult to get to those, to those you know, principles or to get to those conclusions. And there may be no conclusion to get to. But at the very least, in that moment, you have shifted from me versus you or us versus them into we. Like now we're trying to figure something out because you've pinpointed the, the thing that you have in common that you care about that is motivating both of you. I think if, if more people had the ability to do that, uh, um, our discourse would be so much more productive in these sorts of scenarios, right? So like UBI, for example, right? You mentioned UBI. Like I, I, that seems to me to be a pretty good idea. I don't know about the, you know, the, the logistics. There's some practical things that are probably some concerns, right? But, but what's motivating something like that, right? Where's it coming from? And, you know, it's not, the right answer is not, oh, you know, somebody just wants to hand out free money and just kind of, you know, let people be, uh, 
lazy people sitting on the couch just collecting paychecks for not doing any work, right? Like that's that's not where those people are coming from who are advocating for it, right? And the people who are against it, you know, you can say, you can strawman them as saying, you know, oh, they don't care about the poor. They don't care about, you know, the loss of jobs due to automation. They don't care about anybody but themselves. You know, that's also not true. They have principles that are dictating you know, they might say, you know, work ethic is really important and people don't value things if they don't work for them. And, you know, or economically, this is unfeasible or, you know, who knows what they're thinking, right? You'd have to ask them and you'd have to dig into it. But once you do that, you have found some, some actual reasonable thing that you can discuss and you can move from there. You know, that's the power of it, I think. Right. I mean, I think that economic policies are actually, you know, the easier case, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I talked about this with Arnold Kling, where, you know, if someone thinks the tax rate should be 30% and someone thinks the tax rate should be 20%, well, there's kind of an obvious compromise, which is you make it 25%, right? <laughs> like, yeah, these yeah. things are actually much more negotiable. Mm-hmm. And the hard version of that is when one person's solution is like an active harm for the other person, right? Take abortion. Right. Right. It's not like, you know, it's not like one person wants zero abortions and one person wants, you know, however many abortions we have today. I don't actually yeah. know the number. And, you know, they'll both be satisfied <laughs> if it's like N over two, right? If it's half the number of abortions. No, right. one yeah, person yeah. sees abortion as like fundamentally a positive mm-hmm. and one person sees it as fundamentally a negative, mm-hmm. right? And these things are directly opposed to each other. Yeah. Right. It- yeah. Yeah. This is great because I use this example all the time because um, with the abortion thing, the straw manning happens in both directions. So, you know, uh, people who, who are in favor of abortion rights, they straw man the opposition is saying, you know, you just want to control women's bodies, you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, and the other side, people who are against abortion, they strawman those who are for it by saying, you know, you guys want to murder babies, you guys don't want to take responsibility for your actions, et cetera, et cetera. And neither side would agree with that characterization of themselves. Uh, and so what you really, what you should be doing is first trying to understand them, right? So people who are against abortion, um, you know, at least a, va- a vast majority of them they're concerned with human human life, right? They're saying this is a life and you're killing it, right? So if that's what you believe, if, that, if that's where you're coming from, it makes total sense that you would be against this thing. And then people on the other side are like, well, yeah, you know, uh, bodily autonomy is something that that was really hard fought and we have to preserve that and it's important. And, you know, there are the complications of like, well, whose rights matter? And And then of course there's, you know, where does life begin? I don't know if there's any way to really come to a conclusion there. Um, it's because re- it really is based on certain fundamental principles that people have, right? So there's a there's an impasse with a lot of this argumentation, but that doesn't mean there isn't a potential solution to this problem. There isn't a that doesn't mean there isn't a potential compromise. So this is just an example, right? I'm not claiming to have solved the problem of abortion, right? But I think most people would probably agree that a woman who is in the position where she feels that she wants to have an abortion or needs to have an abortion or whatever, 
I think most people can agree that that woman is in a situation that sucks, right? It's not, it's not a happy moment for anybody. You know, most people are like, this is awful. I can't believe I'm dealing with this. I really wish I wasn't dealing with this. You know, I'm, I'm sure that that's the vast majority of cases. And I'm sure that most people will probably agree that, yeah, that woman in that situation, it really sucks, you know? Um, so we could start from there. We can just say, okay, what can we do to make it so that as few women as possible end up in that situation? What are the things that we can do? You know, and that that immediately opens up a bunch of possibilities. That could be completely bipartisan, right? It could be if people were more amenable to to actually finding solutions instead of, you know, dunking on each other. You know, access to to contraception, access to sex education and um, you know, that sort of stuff, right? So that's an example. Like we should make it so that so that it is exceedingly rare for a woman to find herself in this position. And then when they do find themselves in that position, it is so rare that then we can maybe have the conversation about, or what do we do in this difficult circumstance? Right. And right, but people, here's where you run into the problem of urgency again. Right. right? Exactly. If you actually, yeah. if you believe that, you know, this is literally murder, mm-hmm. then it doesn't like that kind of pragmatic lens is not something that comes up you know, like that's, that's just not intuitive at all. You know, like there, there are plenty of murders. So we should, you know, we should set it up so that people are not running into the situation where they're committing murder. Right. This is of course the perspective of someone who is pro-life. Right. right? So like, that, that's just not something that, that comes to people in that way, you know, mm-hmm. and it kind of, there's a kind of cognitive dissonance there where it just doesn't match the intensity of the belief. Right. 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 Yeah, it's it's really hard, but you have to also recognize, you know, you have this intense belief. You have to understand that not everyone else has that intense belief, right? You have to you have to figure out how you're going to deal with people who don't agree with this belief that you have, right? So you can you can sit down and try to convince them of it or you can try to strong arm it, right? And that's really what's happening now is people just kind of trying to bulldoze their way through instead of trying to find some kind of way of of resolving the actual predicament which is that you know yeah even if you think life begins at conception your proposed solutions for these things you know people say abstinence um all that kind of stuff or adoption right that's those are not feasible options for people you know uh, uh adoption for example like people people kind of idealize it People kind of talk about it like it's it's oh it's so easy if you don't want a baby and you, you end up being pregnant just give it up for adoption like you're totally discounting the psychological effects of that sort of stuff and also just the the you know the horrors of that entire uh, I don't want to say industry but you know that entire sort of that though those programs and that sort of structure and system of foster care and adoption and all that sort of stuff it's a nightmare. You know, so if if you're really in favor of that being the solution, then part of your policy, part of your plan should be making that as robust and easy as possible for people to have as an option. Right. And, you know, abstinence, I mean, that's just going against human nature again. Uh, It's highly unlikely to succeed. And you have to just at some point look at the numbers and say, okay, this strategy is clearly not working. And if you're trying to resolve if you're trying to solve problems 
you have to be practical. At some point, you're going to have to hit the brick wall of practicality and you're going to have to do something, right? Um, but similarly, you know, there, there's on the other side, there's plenty of, of understanding that, that people can have about their opposition that would make it easier. You know, villainizing people is just not going to work. You know, the, it's the thing of we, that we talked about a moment ago where the sense of urgency in many ways should preclude the, the tendency to be as vicious as people are and to be as vindictive as people are about this sort of stuff. You know, people think that the urgency justifies um, an impracticality, but it really, it should be the opposite. Right. There's this kind of paradox. I think Garrett Jones actually raised this a few weeks ago where uh, he points out that most of the messages that are like most compelling to the base are also like compelling at the same time for the other side's base. Right. (laughs) So when you, when you build up the sense of urgency, you kind of, it kind of like backfires on you. Right. And and to this point you get locked into this cycle of uh, counter reaction where, where it is Mm -hmm. like, you know, have you have you read this article? I think this article was on. It wasn't by Matthew Iglesias, but it was on his Substack mm-hmm. about uh, secret Congress, right? Yeah. About how there are all of these like bipartisan deals that like no, just, just like everyone agrees not to talk about, <laughs> and just doesn't make the news cycle. It. I mean, I think for some kind of like, I, I think a good example of this being done in practice is like China, right? Like both Biden and Trump would not like to admit how similar their China policy is to each other. But it's also like, (laughs) at least in my assessment, pretty good China policy, right? Right. Like it seems, and it is like very much incorporating aspects of, you know, of Trump's kind of change in position in China in terms of being much more antagonistic towards them, having much more of a focus on the kind of trade war aspect. But it also is like very, very kind of like, you know, they're doing things in a very establishment way, right? And actually Trump was doing things in a very establishment way in with regards to this aspect as well, right? So yeah, there, there is a kind of, there is definitely like a positive case for this as well. It's not like, you know, it's not like it's, uh, it's very clear in one direction or the other. Mm-hmm. But I would still, you know, I would still like to bring the challenge of, urgency the other the other question i have the other really i think strong challenge to this is that this kind of breaks down at the elite level right i had this wonderful semi semi-private conversation uh where actually like two podcasts ago two podcasts ago i asked i said i would ask the person if if he was okay with me kind of disclose or if he wanted me to kind of talk and disclose his name uh when I mentioned the story as well, because he is kind of involved with political stuff. And he's like, he is someone who has been on a few podcasts, right? But I I never got around to that. I should do it again. But basically we were having a conversation and we were talking about neuroticism as like a psychological trait, right? Mm -hmm. And neuroticism for for the audience, neuroticism is uh, oversensitivity to negative uh, information uh, or or negative, uh, negative media, basically negative stimulus, I think is a typical term for it. Right. And we were talking about whether it was a positive or negative in terms of politics, right? In term, because I think there was increasing polarization around neuroticism. It's increasingly associated with the left wing. And, uh, 
And his point was, so my point was that, you know, this just makes you worse at politics, right? It makes you worse at messaging to normal people. But his point was that the the, the kind of comparison is not between, you know, a political, a political a politician or like a media person who is neurotic versus who's more neurotic versus less neurotic, right? That neuroticism actually drives you to participate in these things. So when there is this kind of urgency argument, right, you actually do end up basically... And I think that the, the argument for this in terms of like electoral politics is very weak, where it's very strong is like motivating people to serve an administration, to be like, a, you know, a, like an administrator or like a bureaucrat or, mm-hmm. or an elected official, right? It's a very powerful motivator. It creates that energy. It creates that willingness for people to really sacrifice a lot and do a lot of work in order to accomplish something. And, you know, it has been on basically every single side. It has been, you know the side that has taken over each political party has been the one that has been able to drive up these kind of like, you know, basically drive up these narratives of paranoia. They have won, right? They are the kind of current rulers of both the Republican and Democratic parties. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a human thing. You know, uh, the fear response is, is going to be for obvious reasons, more intense. Um, the anger response is also more intense, right? There's a, the urgency is sort of built in there and it's easy to harness, but it's kind of, you know, and yeah, that can be a good thing, right? Like the anger motivating people to stand up and say something about something that's wrong, right? That's good. And, and, you know, uh, uh, sensitivity to negative information, right? (laughs) That neuroticism, motivating somebody to start running for office or doing something more political in their community or, or even just community organizing or whatever. That's a good thing. You know, generally speaking, that's a good thing that motivating people, um, they're taking that emotion and they're trying to sublimate it and they're trying to do something positive, which is good. But just like anything else that's good, it, it can go haywire and it can lead to bad, you know, just like, just like being agreeable is a good thing, but if you're too agreeable, it can actually lead to you being abused. It can actually lead to, you know, not you kind of not taking stands on things, right? If you're disagreeable, that can be good because it, it allows you to stand up for yourself, et cetera. But then you could also end up being a jerk. So I think I think it's it's just as much of a problem in this way, right? We need to balance these things and we need to recognize, first of all, that it's even happening. You know, so getting back to social media, one of the memes about social media is that, you know, it's designed to piss you off. It's designed to make you Yes, it's angry. not on purpose to make you click. Yes. And, and <laughs> that's, that's only half true. You know, it's, it's not, the algorithms are not designed to stoke polarization and anger and, and vitriol. That's not really what's happening. The algorithms are designed to get and to keep your attention. And it just so happens that getting you pissed off is a really, really good and easy way to get that attention. But we have more control over that than we think we do, right? You know, I mean, my, my Twitter experience is very different from many other people's Twitter experience. Most people call Twitter a cesspool, right? Even before Elon Musk. Um, but it was never a cesspool for me. You know, I kind of curated my, my follows and my content and my way of engaging. And... I have incredible exchanges on Twitter. I, I get really interesting 
feedback from people and information from people. I get ideas for essays. I have amazing exchanges and conversations with people. I've, I've met people who are now real life friends and we've met in real life and now we're buddies, you know, we have each other's phone number. We call each other once in a while. You know, I've, I've gotten nothing but good things from Twitter. So what is this cesspool that people are talking about? Well, it's the thing you're opting into and feeding into without realizing it. But if you're more conscious of it, you can say, oh, okay, I'm not going to click on this thing or I'm not going to react in the way that I, that, you know, I'm expected to with this thing. I'm going to let this thing pass. I'm going to, I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm going to respond to this in a different way. And suddenly you'll start seeing just like, you know, if you start, if you start looking at, you know, two dozen puppy videos on your YouTube, suddenly your YouTube feed is just puppy videos. You know, the algorithm is going to give you what it thinks you want so that you stick around. And if what you want changes, the algorithm will change what it gives you. You know, so it's not, it's not perfect. Obviously it's not going to solve everything, but we need to recognize the, the dynamics here so that we can then do something about it. So when I see, for example, and I'm not special, by the way, like there's nothing special about me or my capacity to do this. It is just, it is just a matter of being mindful, you know, which is not a difficult thing necessarily to do if you want to do it, you know, so, so uh, please don't take this, those of you who are listening, please don't take this as any kind of, you know, me bragging about my superior ability. I, I really don't think it's a superior ability. I don't think it's, I don't think it's that hard. It's just something that maybe doesn't occur to people or it's just, it takes a little bit of effort to get started. Yeah. I would have to say like, this is an insight, right? And I think it's a very important one. Yeah. Yeah. So, you right? know, when I, when I hear, uh, you know, venomous political rhetoric, I roll my eyes. I go, I know what you're doing. I know what you're trying to do here, you know, and it's not going to work on me. I'm not going to get all pissed off and then, you know, start screaming at my, my parents who might disagree or something like that. I'm not going to do this. This isn't going to work on me. You know, what are you actually saying? What are you actually advocating for? And then I'll figure out whether I agree with you, you know? Uh, so if we all started to do that, or if a critical mass of us started to do that, you would notice that the politicians start changing because politicians are kind of like algorithms. They give you what they think you want so that you give them the thing they want, which is attention and support, you know? So it's like, right. You know, yeah. yeah. And, and I want to, I want to just take a moment to compliment you because you know, this is a very important insight. And yeah, I think the thing the that happens... Part. This is the hard part. Yeah. The, the, the thing that happens, okay, and I am very, very guilty of this, mm -hmm. is, you know, people are very uncomfortable being honest with, like, the actual reasons they believe things. Uh -huh. Because, you know, you do that, especially in, like, this, like, concentration, right? Alex Kashuda calls it, like, the IQ shredder, right? All of the people are, like, competing <laughs> in this way, right? right? If you if you kind of like expose yourself like that, expose yourself to criticism like that, a lot of the time, you know, the, the dunks are easy, you know, very irrational. How can you take this seriously? Right? A lot of people will back off from that, right? And in part, this is my disposition, but in part, it's because I've been a little bit, I, I do want to be like self-critical here. It's in part because I've kind of like played this game a little bit too eagerly, you know, of mm -hmm. just going through and, you know, focusing completely on like the rational discourse aspect, you know, like this is, like you said, this does not give you 
when when this does not give you a very accurate depiction of how politics actually works in real life with real people. Yeah. So I think like just your willingness to stick to that and your kind of um, really your kind of like genuine humility when it comes to like receiving that criticism. I'm sure you receive it on a fairly regular basis, right? <laughs> yeah. That is very admirable. Uh, uh, I don't take compliments well. I don't know what to do with them. I get all squirmy. So thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. I'm trying my best. Um, yeah, oh, you yeah. know, turn it, okay, turn it into like more excellent work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I Yeah, I will continue to do my best. And, you know, I think there is a certain temperamental thing to it. Uh, I, I'm not a kind of naturally aggressive person. And so I'm not, I never find myself particularly moved to be, you know, kind of like, for example, protests. I'm not a protest guy. Like I'm mm. not one of those guys. I'm, I'm useless at a protest because I'm looking around and I'm feeling the energy and it's very powerful and moving for me. But I, I don't know. I, it would take me forever to figure out something that I would be able to put on a poster board. And, and walk around with it. You know what I mean? Like, cause it's, it's like, uh, I don't know, man, like the nuance isn't going to fit on this poster board. And that's kind of where I get stuck. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, so there is a little bit of that, but I do think that it's something that can be learned. And I think it's important for people to recognize because it is the thing that is, that is kind of chiefly manipulating everyone. You know, they, they may not realize it. So I, I've written about this, but it's it's sort of analogous here. Uh, I remember being home sick from school one day and turning on the TV and thinking, you know, for some reason, I didn't realize this earlier, but I remember thinking, oh, this is great. I could just watch TV all day, you know? And I'm like maybe 10 or something like that, or maybe younger. I turn on the TV and I'm like, oh, all this stuff sucks because it's all for, you know, little preschool age kids. Or the, on, on some other channels, it's like daytime TV, like, you know, talk shows and stuff like that. So there's nothing for me there. And the reason there's nothing for me there is because I shouldn't be home. I should be at school, right? Uh, and this was obviously before, you know, 24-hour, uh, 10,000 channels and the internet and all that kind of stuff. So there really was no option for, you know, I can, I can there's no Netflix. I can't just like binge watch something. It was about what was being fed to me that was on the TV stations, you know, on the TV networks. Um, but anyway, I realized, oh, this kind of sucks. Not, none of this is for me. And something that I noticed is what the commercials were like. You know, if it was the preschool age stuff, like the cartoons for the tiny little kids, the commercials were different. You know, they were like super flashy and very simple, not a ton of language because these kids barely speak, right? And I noticed that and I thought, oh man, like I wouldn't buy that or like, why would I want this thing, you know? And, and then I also noticed, you know, during the talk shows and stuff, it was like, you know, medications and things like that, that I didn't care about. Like, the, you know, these aren't toys, these aren't action figures, you know, where are the Power Rangers, right? Like I, I, I didn't, I didn't care about any of these things because they weren't for me. But what that, that allowed me to do because I had this outside perspective was notice what the tactics were that were being employed, you know, for the little, little kids, it was like flashy and colorful and super fast and energetic and all this stuff appealing to, you know, the, the general temperament and proclivities of a four-year-old. And then with the other stuff, it was, it was the same thing, but for kind of, you know, retirees or maybe like middle-aged, um, stay at home parents or whatever. 
and I notice like, oh man, like I don't care about any of this stuff. But then you notice, oh, I'm noticing the editing. I'm noticing kind of the music. I'm noticing, you know, who the spokespeople are and how they have a kind of, you know, assumed authority and all this kind of stuff. And it, it made me realize, oh, there, you know, this is how, this is how pe people try to get people to do things. This is, this is what influence is. Right. And then later on, when I was, you know, watching TV at a time where I demographically should be, you know, after school hours and stuff like that, I noticed the same sort of stuff in the commercials that were meant for me. And that allowed me to see the mechanisms behind it and to say, oh, I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to make me feel like if I don't have this toy, then I'm going to be a loser at school or whatever. You know, uh, I just kind of intuited that. And that really, that really affected me because it allowed me to see, oh, it allowed me to see this way that people are trying to affect my behavior and influence my behavior. And it allowed me to give at least just a moment, you know, it didn't always work. It didn't mean that I was perfectly inoculated to this, but it allowed me at least a moment's pause where I could say, huh. And I think, I think that kind of translated later on into politics, you know, so when I'm watching a politician speak, you know, and George Carlin was very helpful with this as well, the way that he would break these things down. Um, but when I'm watching a politician speak, I'm like, ah, I notice how you said that and how indirect it is. And it allows you to kind of wiggle your way out if something goes wrong. Or, you know, I notice how you didn't answer that question. I notice how you said a bunch <laughs> of stuff. Such cases. Yeah. You know, like I, I notice yeah. how you said a bunch of stuff that kind of sounds good, but you didn't actually answer the question. And I just started to pick up on that stuff, right? So if we just if we just approach things in that way, where we're more mindful of the ways that we're trying to be manipulated by these people because they want something from us, then maybe we can we can change the way that they approach it. You know, like hey, you know, bullshitting me is not going to get you anywhere. Uh, you're going to have to you're going to have to do better than that, and then people will change because that's what they want. You know, you have more power than you think. Yeah, I mean, the kind of human nature case against this, right, mm -hmm. is that like most people are just not paying that much attention. Right. Like yeah. it's very exceptional to pay that much attention. Most people, you know, they just let things, let these things pass by. And if it works, then it works. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's true. And yeah, that's what we were talking about earlier. Uh, people don't really know the reasons for the things that they believe and feel necessarily. Yes, unless, exactly. Unless they're obsessive thinkers like you know, or obsessive introspectors like us. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with not knowing that stuff. That's just not something that everyone has to naturally be into doing, right? But it's clearly a useful skill to have. It's clearly something that will be helpful to you if you are more mindful, if you are more aware of the ways in which, you know, rhetoric was meant to influence you. That gives you more power. It gives you more of a capacity to respond more productively. And so to, you know, to the extent that people are not used to flexing that muscle or they're not as aware, you know, we should, we should try to make people aware. We should try to be like, hey, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever noticed this? And just kind of get them thinking. I can't imagine anybody being, uh, you know, ungrateful about that, right? Like I had thinking about like the matrix, right? And there's like the one guy who wants to be plugged back in, <laughs> you know, but. Yeah, I mean, in real life, people, there's a lot yeah. more than one guy. 
you know, the matrix is enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, the, 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 the problem with that analogy though, is that the world outside the matrix, like pretty objectively sucks. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and in this case, in this scenario, you know, the, the world outside of, of being unwittingly held hostage by master manipulators is a much, much better world to be in. And so people will probably, I would say almost universally be happy to be in, you know, brought into that world. They'll, they'll be, they'll be more, they'll be glad that they have more of a capacity to recognize this stuff and to say, aha, I see your bullshit and I'm not going to take it. You know, I think people would probably yeah. like that. <laughs> so. There's this kind of axis, right? There's usually like this brave new world versus, uh, versus 1984 axis mm-hmm. of, you know, overt totalitarian control yeah. versus like pleasurable addiction and manipulation, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's very rare that people have, have settled on the actual trajectory, which is like manipulation, which is like manipulation and addiction, but in a way that just feels awful. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know that there's this great book, called amusing ourselves to death yes, by, yes. By neil is that postman. is that putnam it's neil Who postman it? oh right 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 okay neil postman yeah so it's it's uh, i think the subtitle is public discourse in the age of show business and it's it's just a fantastic book everybody should read i recommend it all the time i never shut up about it because it really affected the way that i look at this stuff and it's funny that you brought that up about 1984 versus a brave new world because I think he even kicks the book off with with that comparison. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, everyone kind of, you know, 1984, I guess, was kind of better written or more impactful for people. And so people remember it. And that's kind of the thing that everyone's sort of on the lookout for. But A Brave New World is what actually ended up happening, which is to say that, you know, nobody took the books away. They just stimulated you with other things to the point where you don't really want to read them in the first place. And nobody needs to force you into compliance because compliance feels so good that you do it willingly. You know, so so everyone's kind of like looking out their window for the jackbooted thugs who are going to come and oppress them. And meanwhile, you know, on their TV is the real drug that is kind of putting everybody to sleep and everyone's just kind of willingly giving in. Um, yeah but it's like here's the thing it's this kind of like meta meta dystopian thing Mm -hmm. where the thing that is addicting people is you know this this kind of like dystopian vision of the world right so like it's like (laughs) that's true that's true yeah it's 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 the it's brave new world but you know all of the soma is just like copies of 1984 right yeah 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 you're right wow that's i hadn't thought about that but you're right and it's it's um you know, that's kind of connected to this other thing that uh, I read from Majid Nawaz in his book, uh, he, his memoir, Radical, which is a fantastic book. I kind of, I kind of feel bad for Majid now because I feel like he's kind of lost the plot. But, but still, it's a great. You book. mean on the vaccine stuff or on yeah, the you know just spying the, stuff? Yeah, like overt conspiracism stuff. I feel like, I feel like he's kind of lost it. That's just me. Um, but but that book is great, and he talks about what he's this thing he calls the romanticism of struggle, and that's kind of what you're talking about here, which is, you know, it's 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 really alluring to have this sort of 
enemy to rail against this sort of thing that you have to constantly be, you know, the rebels, the resistance. There's something about that that is, that is really enticing and it makes people feel good. It gives them a sense of purpose and all this other stuff. And, you know, to the extent that those things exist, it is good to have that sense of purpose, but it's, it's just too easy to convince ourselves that something exists when it doesn't because it's so full. Yeah. I mean, this, this returns to the, to, to the problem of like, I, I mean, I made this illusion earlier, but I do want to make it kind of draw it out into the open now of like Eric Hoffer's The True Believer, right? Have you ever read that book? No, I haven't. Yeah. So, so like the, the point, one of the points that he makes is that basically people who are like paranoid, but of things that are not actually there, who are basically, you know, who have a sense of power, but also have a sense of like fear that they're there, they could lose that power at any moment. That those people are kind of the best for being basically well the the true believers the the stormtroops of any uh of, of any movement mm-hmm. of any kind of like social or political uh or religious change mm-hmm. and I mean you just look at like the quote unquote base of both the democratic and republican party it's like yeah yeah Hoffer was basically right yeah. uh, at least when it comes to when it comes to the circumstance we're in right now. And so there is this trade-off, right, where in a kind of uh, not necessarily evolutionary sense, but in a kind of like, you know, practical sense, right, it's just true that the people who are less empathetic and who are kind of, you know, paranoid about the other side, that they actually gain more political influence with it, both within their party and I think to some degree with uh, with politics at large. Yeah. Yeah. It's the fundamental nature of, you know, the loud minority and the, you know, by sort of, it's just the way it works, right? The people who are the most enthusiastic are going to make the most noise and they're going to be the most animated and they're going to do the most and they're going to do the most more quickly. And so then you get a, an outsized sense of, you know, just how, how many, how representative those people actually are of the larger cohort. And I think that's why it's so important for, for, you know, against their, against their temperament, against their proclivities, probably uh, more moderate people need to speak up and sort of, you know, do that thing where they, they don't want to do it and they don't want to, you know, because it's not in their nature, but they should speak up and say, Hey, you know, this is not, you guys are going too far. This is like, we need to pull this back, <clears throat> you know? Yeah, but the, the the problem is, right, you know, it's exactly the people with the dispositions who would lead them to basically, you know, like normal beliefs that would also lead them to not speaking up, right? They're the same disposition. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And they're going to have yeah. to sort of split that difference. Uh, they're going to have to, sit, you know, realize, okay, it's not what I want to do. I don't want to be this guy. But I have to be this guy because otherwise the other guy is going to take up all the space and then I'm going to be forced out of here, you know? So it's kind right. of- Right. It's a kind of unwilling servant, right? Yeah, yeah. Or like and, the, unwilling, the unwilling public servant. Or, or, or think of it more of, of like, you know, uh, an introvert having to force himself to be extroverted. You know, it's, it's, a, it's uncomfortable. I get it. You know, I'm an introvert, right? But I'm also, I'm also the lead singer of a band. You know, and like, 
I, I didn't do it because I wanted to be all out there and in front of people and all that sort of stuff. I did it because I have this passion for it and it feels good. And I have something that I really feel like I need to communicate. But I, I really just, I hate that thing, that lead singer thing, right? Where you have to be the center of the tension. You have to command all that attention. Um, and so I was in this funk band, right? And I'm like, well, I want to sing this stuff because it's fun. And I think it's going to be cool. But the only way I can do that is if I become James Brown. Like I have to be that level of loud, right? And it's not in my nature. That's not my temperament. You know, I'm, I'm fairly soft-spoken. You can probably tell. Um, but I did it because it was what needed to be done in order for the thing that I wanted to work. And it's, it's sort of the same thing here. You know, like, it's like, well, I get it. You're, you're moderate and your temperament is not really the, the kind that is amenable to that sort of way of being. But if you don't speak, if you don't say something, if you don't reel things back in, you're going to lose it completely. So you have to decide for yourself, well, do you want to stay quiet? Do you want to not be bothered or not bother and lose everything? Or do you want to force yourself out of your comfort zone and speak up a little bit and possibly save the thing that you care about? Right. It's kind of like having a sense of urgency, but not having that drive you to like, you know, yeah. tribalism. Yeah. As we right? said, the urgency is good. You know, it's, it's not automatically a bad thing. But, but, you know, the problem becomes when the sense of urgency seems to you to justify impractical and counterproductive behavior, which is what, what happens. But you see why it does. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, or I should say, like, it's not just that it like, you know, that it psychologically causes people to believe that, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. It's that, you know, in practice, in many situations in history, right. And in like everyday life right? Maybe not, not in modern life, right? But in history, at least, that desperate times actually do call for desperate measures, right? Yeah. There are times where, you know, extreme action is actually necessary. Yes. But people, I think, have the wrong idea about what, what constitutes a desperate measure or a justifiable desperate, desperate measure. You know, like just because it's desperate times and just because uh, they call for desperate measures doesn't mean any measure is acceptable or or worth doing, right? Like, <laughs> I think the thing is, people think that 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 desperate times sort of just obliterate the line, and and uh, you know a- anything is called for at this point. Like, no, it's not. <laughs> like, what are you trying to do? Right, right, right. You this know? is very important as well. Yes. <laughs> what are this you trying great. to do? Like, what's what's actually going to achieve the thing that you want? You know. Um, this is yeah, one of the like reasons blind why... struggling. Stop, stop blind struggling. Right. Yeah. 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 Like, this is okay. actually, you're, you're cornered, right? Okay. You're cornered. I get it. This is the part where your heart rate goes up and you feel, you know, the intensity and there's fear and you're going to act out. Right. But there are a million different things you can do in that circumstance that are not going to be good for you. You know, even though they, yeah, yeah. This is exactly, like, you know, you know, <laughs> Yeah, this is exactly the point that that Curtis Curtis Yarvin got excoriated for post Dobbs, right? I'm not sure how familiar you are with that. I did watch your your quote unquote debate with him. Oh yeah, uh, that was it. Was more of a I don't know, like <laughs> you know, I I never met Curtis before that, but it, I I couldn't call that a conversation or a debate of any kind. It was more of like a lecture that I was right. Yeah, yeah. There was part. not enough, you know. There was not enough back and forth. Yeah, uh, no. I tried that to. Was, yeah, I tried to get a word in edgewise. It was difficult. 
but he, he's, I mean, obviously he knows, he knows what he's talking about. Uh, but I, it, you know, it would have been nice to get a little bit more of an exchange going, but anyway, you were saying. Yeah. So, so I'm not sure if you, if, if you know about this at all, but basically, you know, post Dobbs, he had an article that was like, you know, passing more abortion bans right now would be a terrible idea. I think an article that actually aged pretty well, um, given the midterm results. Uh-huh. But that, like, you know, struggling basically there that the line between, you know, this is a this is a situation where you have um and where you have uh what is it, you know, even if you consider it to be murder, right? Just because you're in a situation where things that you consider to be murder are happening at a very fast rate doesn't mean you should do the obvious, you know, struggle solution because that can, that, that just results in like defeat, right? That if you, if you don't have a strategy behind your actions, you know, it doesn't matter that you're right. It doesn't matter if you think you've, you're right. You have to actually think through the consequences of your actions. Mm-hmm. And he actually, I mean, there, yeah. there are certain, you know, there's certain metaphors, the hobbits and the elves, there are just certain metaphors that were not, um, you know, that were not necessarily uh, the best, you know, literary tactic. Uh, but I think even the fundamental idea was like roundly excoriated by, you know, people who, people who are, uh, people who are like at least nominally in the same tribe as him. Right. right? So yeah. that was very interesting that like this, even like from someone who is, who's had this, pretty long record of being, you know, like, you know, like a monarchist, very, very right wing (laughs) had, had this kind of experience with, you know, basically saying like, look at the consequences of your actions and getting that kind of backlash. Yeah. It's uh, fascinating. Uh. (laughs) Sorry, sorry about that. I'm not sure how much you are, you're interested in, uh, in, in in the happenings surrounding courtesy Harvin. No, I mean, I, I had never, honestly, I'd never heard of him before, before we talked. Uh, I just, and I was interested to, you know, oh, this will be fun, you know, kind of talk about it. And it was cool. Yeah. If we managed to get, you know, if we managed to get you guys on the same wavelength, that would be, you know, that would be a conversation because he is like, even more than I am, like a purely analytic thinker, you know, he has yeah. this thing. That I could like, tell. Yeah. The, the clear pill of like basically saying you should have like complete emotional detachment when you're thinking about systems of politics, you know, like, like basically like, like a monk, like dedication to, Mm -hmm. to, you know, figuring out how this thing actually works. Like, wow. (laughs) Right. I can see Um, that, Uh, you know, that, that makes sense. I just think that kind of like we were, what we mentioned earlier, you have to also at the same time recognize that you cannot divorce emotions from people. And so yeah, that, sure. that has for to, sure. that has to play into your calculus, you know, Hey, this is the best objective structure and system, you know, based on all this data, but how people feel about it is going to affect the system and the structure as well. And that if that's not part of your data, it's going to screw the whole thing up. That's kind of where I'm coming from there, you know? Um, right. Speaking of systems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, systems that would hopefully solve the problems that we're facing of uh, partisanship, of increasing intolerance, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, work for a, you work for an organization that is a foundation against intolerance and racism, right? Yeah, I do. Uh, 
what are what are the operations looking like there, right? Uh, well, actually, I'm. What no progress longer... are you making against intolerance and racism? Um, well, I'm no longer there, uh, but, but, um, but I think I think a lot of work is being done, and I think it really matters. I think you know if basically if if anyone thinks that my approach to these issues and all these things that we've been talking about is helpful or insightful. Um, FAIR is, is kind of like the organizational version of that approach. You know, I, I, um, I resonated so much with FAIR because, I mean, if I, if I built my own organization from the ground up, it would be almost identical. Its principles, its approach, it's all pretty much the way that I try to be. And so, you know, um, bridging divides and having compassion and recognizing that there, there are better and worse ways to engage in certain issues, um, more productive ways and less productive ways. And, you know, we should try to opt for the former, um, you know, to the extent that anyone finds that useful or helpful or good, then they should also find fair, useful, helpful, and good. And, you know, it, it it launched in March of 2021, and it's it it expanded quite a lot in that time. Um, you know, it's, it hasn't even been two years yet, and you know, we, we're talking about tons of events. We're talking about you know ethnic studies curricula. We're talking about its own diversity program. You know, um, I think I think they were restructuring the chapters to just be basically like state chapters. So one per state, but there was probably like a hundred something chapters, 30,000 volunteers, um, all these people kind of uniting around these principles and, and uh, you know, affecting change in this really positive way. And also on the legal side, you know, we had a legal team that, that would kind of blow the whistle on institutions and organizations that were kind of implementing unconstitutional racist policies, you know, with under the, you know, the, with the intention of diversity or with the intention of social justice, but, you know, f uh, directly flouting the civil rights act and, uh, <laughs> you know, the first amendment, the 14th amendment, et cetera. Um, right. And so that basically, basically it's an organization that, I mean, you know, like ethnic studies, um, those kind of, uh, racial programs are usually affiliated with the kind of extreme, extreme cultural left. Right. Right. But right. Right. so what, what fair is trying to do is essentially have like a moderate, um, yeah. Reasonable. I don't know if you would say alternative or reasonable you know, approaches to these problems. Right. Because so, so much of the issue with, you know, the, the far left and then the far right opposition to the far left is that they're both wrong. Right, they're both wrong and they're both right in some ways. They're the things that they're concerned about should are legitimate things to be concerned about, or understandable things to be concerned about. And so much of the problem is just in the way that they choose to go about addressing those concerns. And so, Fair's mission is to try to find constructive, productive, you know, nonpartisan sort of ways of of approaching those things. So, you know, ethnic studies is a good thing. Diversity is a good thing. It's it's a bad thing when you do it in in certain bad ways, right? But the fundamental principles those are good, and those are things that we should figure out a way to grapple with, right? So, 
sort of, you know, flat opposition to them or just kind of uh, unrelenting opposition to them is also the wrong way to go. You know, we should say, hey, kind of the approach that we've been talking about this whole time, you know, where it's like, hey, look, I get I get why you want to do this and I understand the importance of the thing you're trying to do, but the way you're doing it is causing these problems. Here's a way we can do it that doesn't cause those problems. And let's try this. You know, that's kind of Fair's approach. Right. I would actually push back on the idea that like eth- ethnic studies is a good thing, though, because mm-hmm. in general, I mean, we can look at this historically or in the present, right? This is what's happening in the present day United States. I think that most of the time when you when you draw attention to race, it just polarizes people around that, right? It just makes people care more about it. It just makes people more divided along those lines. Yes. And, you know, there's like this hypothetical idea, right? I kind of like we were talking about, I kind of get where you're coming from mm-hmm. of wanting people to kind of understand and see the nuance in and to really build a community that is, you know, that gets past these types of divisions by talking about it. But I think that empirically, that's usually not what happens. Mm -hmm. That usually, even if you have the best intentions, even if you genuinely are saying things that are like, you know, you should actually not be racist, right? That, you know, you should not have things like collective guilt and so on and so forth, Mm -hmm. right? That even then, right? And I believe this is backed up by some of the Kaufman Report stuff. Even then, right? just because you're like raising that point, right? That, that that people have that in their mind and people are thinking about, you know, like what race am I? What race are the people around me? Mm-hmm. That still leads to basically more kind of ethnic conflict. Um, yeah, I totally get that concern. I, I would flag uh, what seems to be a conflation of race and ethnicity there in, in your response. Uh, and I think I think one, I fully agree with you on, but the other I think is important to disassociate. So, you know, race is a fiction and we shouldn't be leaning into that. We should be working however hard we can to, you know, to remove ourselves from that paradigm because all it does is create division and toxicity. But ethnicity is a legitimate thing. Uh, And, you know, America in particular is, you know, sort of this project that we've been, we've been working on where many ethnicities sort of blend together into this one sort of super ethnicity. Uh, and by super, I just mean <laughs> combined, uh, you know, so there's that. And it also depends on how you're defining ethnic studies, like what that actually means. Right. And we at fair, when we, when I was there, we were working on, on being very clear about what we meant and what we didn't mean. And right. um, there's an op-ed. There's an op-ed for I think real clear education that a couple of my colleagues put together, and it's about uh, ethnic studies. And I think it breaks it down in a really, really easy to understand way. And I think it 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 crystallizes what the approach is, which I think matters. You know that you know part of what makes America wonderful is that it is it is the result of the contributions of people from all over the world, all these different places, all these different cultures, all these different ethnicities coming together to create this thing that we call America and to become this thing that we call American. And I think, I think it's more than fine to, to examine that, to understand it, to see it and to recognize, you know, all the ways that America lived up to its founding principles and all the ways that it didn't. 
and the ways that we corrected those things. So that's, that's where I'm coming right. from. And that's where we're coming from with that. Yeah. I'll link that. I'll link that in the notes. I haven't read that article. Yeah. So. It's a quick one. It's a, just a kind of an op-ed sort of statement of purpose about FAIR's approach to ethnic studies and why it's important to have an ethnic studies curriculum that isn't divisive or overtly political in that way. I think one of the one of the big questions is whether there's sort of like a whether there's a slippery slope in terms of these cultural aspects, right? A lot of right wing people would say, you know, you lost a kind of if not public religion, then public morality that was kind of shared on principle based on shared principles of religion that you had a morality that was not rooted that that was not rooted in this kind of um division and you first lost that morality and then that resulted in the kind of present day problems that we're seeing right now mm-hmm. right yeah and that if you want if you want to prevent this problem from reoccurring right it, you can't just go to set reset it to neutral you have to actually be pushing in the other direction mm-hmm well, do do yeah. you think that do you think that's the case? Yes, but I think that I think that people who say that should be mindful of what other what the perspectives of others were about the paradigm that they're lamenting having lost. Right? So this shared morality, I don't think it was actually shared. It was kind of like you know, there was a dominant one and it kind of silenced all the others. Uh, and you know, those of, those of you who were down with it seem to think that there was consensus because it's all you saw, you know, um, like, you know, this is, you know, we, we used to have the church and this is one thing that people say, like we used to have the church and everyone went to church and it was great, but you're totally discounting all the people who didn't believe or who believed something else. And they weren't included in that Norman Rockwell painting that you're you're kind of looking on as our idyllic past. You know what I mean? So it was always more complicated. You just maybe didn't see it. And that's not to say that that the problem they're pointing to right now doesn't exist. Cause I think it does. I think, you know, we're in we're in a, a situation where there are growing pains and there's kind of a a tension between competing moral codes or or perspectives on how the world should be. But that's a necessary thing. And I think that going back is a bad idea, you know, because of the things that I just mentioned. But but pushing forward in the spirit of finding something that actually works and that really does include everyone and doesn't make the same mistakes as were made in the past, I think that's a great thing. And I think we can find it because you know, we do have fundamental values in common and we could find a way to make them work. And, you know, kind of getting to the the question at the top about classical liberalism, that's kind of what I see it as. Like, this is a foundational principle that I think almost everybody can agree upon. And that's, that's the kind of foundation we can use to build the rest. You know, we can figure out the structure. It won't be easy. There's going to be challenges and it's, it's, there's always going to be tension. We'll never rid ourselves of that, but we have, there, there is reason to hope because 
we have this this capacity to recognize ourselves in one another and to use that recognition as a way to move forward together and finding the answers to these difficult questions or at least pursuing them. Right. I think that, so, so the way that I would, I mean, I don't think I'm op- as optimistic as you in terms of finding <laughs> those solutions. I think there are questions, you know, especially on social policy where the positions are basically like orthogonal in terms of, or not orthogonal in terms like basically directly opposed. Right. Do you think, do you think that transition is good or do you think it's bad? Right. It's like very difficult to come to a compromise there. Right. And to me, I think the realistic scenario is that, you know, there's a third, a third, a third, right. There's a third solid Democrat. There's a third solid Republican and people in the middle who can be convinced. Mm-hmm. And to me, like the point, the real lesson to learn here is that like, even though you can't convince everyone, right? Like, like you can be, you can say like, oh, what's the difference? I can, you know, I can be as uh, star manning and as understanding as I want. And I still won't convince someone who's very, very far left, mm-hmm. right? Like that's, to that person, I would say like, it's not the point, right? The point is like the third in the middle. The point is like the third that that can be convinced and yeah to me at least i i think that you know the median voter theorem actually does work right that it actually that it actually is possible to convince you know this is a third in the middle and that you know the point might be that maybe you don't try to convince the people who are most extreme but you can convince people who are in the middle you can convince people maybe to be you know just one step less extreme Right. That, that is ultimately yeah. marginal. Sure. Sure. But that, like, that's the, that's the way to apply this. Yes. But also, you know, remember Daryl Davis, right? That, that's an extreme. And that is something that, you know, anybody would have told him with very good reason that he was on a fool's errand. Right. But he wasn't. It turns out that he wasn't at all. And it turns out that, that he did something extraordinary and, and amazing and worthwhile and that everyone should be glad he's done it and that he continues to do it. Right. So there's that. And that's another, that's another reason for optimism. And then as well, I think this complicates things a little bit, but it's also important to know that, you know, you're not the only one who needs to do the convincing. Other people also need to convince you because you might be the one who's too far. You might be the one who's wrong. And, you know, you're doing your best. You think you have the right answer and you're doing, you're, you're acting in accordance with the way you see the world. But just, just like you're trying to persuade the others, however extreme they are out of their position, they're trying to do the same with you and you need to remain open to that possibility. And as long as you are, then I think there's flexibility. Then I think that there's possibility for, you know, even the extremes to move away from the extreme and to find some kind of common ground. So I think it's more than just that third. I think it's, I think it's everybody. It just takes longer and it's just, it's just difficult. None of this is going to be easy. None of this has been easy. None of this is easy now, but it's, it's necessary and it's worth it. That's what I think. Yeah, I, 
I think there's a reason why we tell stories of the unlikely happening, right? And that it's, it's precisely because they're unlikely. Is it's precisely because, mm. you know, they, they are something to aspire to. I agree with you on that. They're completely something to aspire to. Yeah. But at the same time. We should be realistic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like well, the more, this is kind of the theme of this conversation is I that a that. lot of these things are like pre-rational. I get that. Right? I get that. Um, you know, what I would say is two things. First of all, um, I guess it's, I guess you can still say it's unlikely, but. I think Daryl Davis's track record is pretty extraordinary. And, you know, I mean, 200 plus people, that's, that's a lot for one guy to have done. Imagine if there were 10 of him, you know, however unlikely it really is. Just imagine, imagine if there were 10 other people like Daryl Davis doing what he was doing and they only did 10% of what he did. That's still amazing and worth aspiring to, as you said. But also, and this is, I think, is the most important thing, those extremes are, they're not just, it's not just unlikely what would happen there, but the extremes themselves are more, they're less common than the rest. And so you don't actually need to be doing this extraordinary and unlikely thing over and over again, because nobody's order is anywhere near as tall. You know, we're talking about your brother, we're talking about your uncle, we're talking about your neighbor, we're talking about your classmate or your, your, you know, your coworker. We're just talking about normal people, regular people. And we're talking about, at really, we're just talking about fundamental ideas that are, that we disagree on, but we're always going to agree on more than we disagree on because we're people and we have those fundamental values in common. I think if we keep that in mind, there's there's totally a case for optimism, you know? So this isn't pie in the sky on my part. This isn't, um, you know, I, I think, I think people often conflate idealism with naivete and I, I dispute that, you know, my idealism is incredibly practical and it is incredibly grounded in reality and the facts of human nature and, and, society and the way that it's worked. You know, I, I don't think that I'm, I don't think that I'm kind of overextending. I don't think that I'm, I'm giving too much slack. I think I'm seeing the world as it is and I'm seeing human nature as it is. And I'm reasoning from there that more is possible than we think it is. You know, it's a, it reminds me of the Steven Pinker book, better angels of our nature and also enlightenment now. You know, we have a perception that things are worse than they actually are, but our, our, if you zoom out, the, the trend lines all go up and to the right, you know? And I think it's important to keep that in mind. Oh, man. <laughs> I felt like we were this close to agreeing. <laughs> and, you know, you brought up that book. That I have a lot of criticisms of. Oh, I'm um, sure. Better but... angels of our nature, or not better, uh, or yeah, better angels of our nature. Um, All right. Well, how about two but, other? You know, two other books. We'll, it, we'll disregard those. There's two other books. There's the selfish yeah, gene. It's, it's been three hours. You know, <laughs> would you like to? And yeah, I, I want to say, like, you know, I'm still not completely convinced of like the optimism case, right? Um, I, like, if I were to put money 
on like whether there will be like a broad coalition of the middle in like 20 years. I would actually put in terms of just like sheer 50, 50, 50, I would, I would say, I would bet on no. Mm-hmm. Right. But you know, I respect, I, I respect your optimism. Hopefully, mm-hmm. hopefully you'll convince me, right. I'm, I'm, I'm open to this. Well, Hey, uh, uh, here's all it takes, man. Um, try to do the thing that we're yeah, talking about. I will. Just try to do the thing. And now there's two of us. That's, that's how easy it is. You know? Uh, so again, yeah, it's practical optimism. It's not pie in the sky optimism, you know. I, and I do think that fundamentally, the the odds are in our favor because you know here we are, we're we're having this conversation through the you know technology. Uh, you know, presumably you aren't looking over your shoulder, worrying about being attacked or mugged or mauled, right? And neither am I. That's correct. <laughs> and you know, you you closed your door and you locked it and you you have you have a tacit assumption that no one's going to be kicking it down to cause you harm. Right. In this 3 hours, <laughs> you know, you have dedicated this this 3 hours to talking to me. And so and I've and I've dedicated it to talking to you without any real concern for, you know, am I going to starve? Am I going to freeze to death or any of that stuff? And why is that? It's because we've we've developed throughout our history, these systems and structures that have given us this luxury. And I think that's a, a monumental feat that is the result of our, I guess, evolutionarily, you know, sort of innate desire to cooperate and to to create things and create society and structure for our mutual benefit. You know, the two other books, I don't know how you feel about these, but The Selfish Gene the Richard Dawkins book, which basically just kind of talks about like the evolutionary, the evolutionary origins of altruism and how it's kind of programmed in and also blueprint by Nicholas Christakis, which is kind of the same thing. Like this is why we create these social systems and they're cooperative. So I think, I think, you know, our nature is actually in our favor. Human nature gets a bad rap because, you know, there's a lot of bad, but I think there's more good. And I think I think the the science actually bears it out. So, but really, yeah, all right. really, all it takes is hey, try to do the thing, and now you're part of the thing. That's all it is. It's been yeah, you know, it's been three hours. You know, <laughs> um, would you like to answer the last question of the show? Yeah, sure, hit me. What is hopefully something that we haven't talked about so far? Uh-huh. What is something that is too much chaos and needs more order? And something that's too much order and needs more chaos. Um, let's see. <laughs> something that Lots has of things to think about. Something that has too much order and needs more chaos is art. I would say, mm. you know, film, music, television. I think we need crazier ideas. We need more, more ideas. We need, you know, more out of the box things. People play it way too safe uh, or not. They don't, they don't go as nuts as they could. There's plenty of, of interesting stuff going on, but if I had to put chaos anywhere, it would be in art because that's where the good stuff comes from. And mm. as for the, the, the inverse, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the, 
I guess, our discourse, right? There's so much chaos and we definitely need more order, but I'm, I'm hesitant to say it that way because I think order sort of, it's, it has this connotation of somebody coming in and sort of enforcing things. But really what I think we need is more sanity and compassion, of course. But yeah. All right. And definitely a lot of that from you. And that's great. Uh, thanks for coming on, Angel. Oh, thank you very much, man. It was great talking to you. That was my conversation with Angel Eduardo. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, you can subscribe to this podcast for another episode every single Monday. And as I mentioned up top, the best thing you can do if you want to help us out is that you can share, you can tell a friend either in person or social media about the podcast. You could also leave a review. You could suggest future guests, which I definitely appreciate, on either the Substack or in the podcast reviews. And you can also help us out by uh, leaving a rating, leaving a positive rating on any podcast app, whichever one you're using to listen to this one. And as always, see you again next week.